the one thing I'll say about a mixologist, right, is that a mixologist, a mixologist serves drinks and a bartender serves guests. Okay? Oh, and that, that's, like that's, 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 well, that's, well, that's, well, that's. We are recording a brand spanking new episode of Bunko Podcast. We're starting over because I fucked up a little bit. My name is Nick Jimenez. I am the supposed producer of this supposed <laughs> show. Yeah. Nice. We are joined by alleged chef, eighth grade basketball MVP, and award-winning Elvis impersonating Santa Claus, Michael Beltran. I'd like to say those are all true facts. Applauding himself, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. He Thank doesn't you. like to admit to it, but he's also a chili cook-off champion. That never happened. Uh, we are also joined... By one area hospitality group, beverage director Tom Lasher Walker. So, if you have had a beverage, particularly a cocktail, at an area hospitality group property in the last year and a half or so, Tom, or as many people over the course of just the last few hours have corrected me, Tom. Tom. <laughs> Was responsible uh, in some way, shape, or form, probably a big way, shape, or form for that cocktail. Uh, I will say, I I know that I DM'd you at some point recently, Tom, uh, Mm -hmm. telling you that my plan was to sit and have the whole area cocktail menu in one sitting. I didn't do that, but I finally did get through the whole thing in different sittings. Okay. And it's all fucking great. Great. Thank you. Man, (laughs) that was was a labor of love. Yeah, yeah, and then and then some. Yeah, I was. Uh, <clears throat> God, what was the thing? Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll step back. I've had too many drinks to participate. In Already, this. huh? Man, I, I was. The thing we're is, early. I got set up really early, and then I decided to. Uh, I don't know. Kill time is the wrong word, but I was waiting at Taurus, and you know those James Peppers go down quick. Yeah, James. Oh, Pe- okay. James Pepper, huh? James yeah, Pepper. That's my move. I'm not gonna like get into it too much. Right, because we're doing this for the second time. Okay. But I would just like everyone who listens to go look at Nick's new default photo. That's Nicolás A. Jiménez. Right. It's incredible. He looks like he's in his element. He really looks like a dashing man. He He's he's really like, I think he did one for the ladies there, and I think it works. Mm-hmm. So I implore everyone who listens, all 22 to 25 people that listen to this thing, to go and to see that. Literally all of that is getting cut out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's perfect. Um, Tom, how are you? I'm good. How are you? You know, um, we're, we're, <laughs> we're starting over. You know, it's, it's a new day. Yeah. It's a new day, but I am fantastic. I uh, just yeah, just put it. We're doubling down. It's it's been a couple of days. I love that for you. Yeah, yeah we're doubling down. Um, you know, obviously, we're gonna tell the people your backstory and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I want to recall one of my favorite Tom experiences. Okay. So, and I think I've been very vocal about this. Like uh, when when we went on a search for a new beverage director, I had pretty much given up all hope. I had thrown in the the towel, put up a white flag. I had surrendered, and I was like, I just don't think that we're going to be able to find someone who matches like our ideology, kind of like our mission statement, if you will, in the mixology world. Right, right. Because I think that in and of itself, like, just 
the mixologists here in Miami, they don't really match what we do at all whatsoever. And we'll talk more about that when we get further along in the episode. But I think, um, so when we met, it was through someone else and, and that's, and then I had interviewed someone else before that and someone else before that. And I was just kind of like, I don't know. I don't like really any of these fucking people. Right. So I, I had very low hopes for you. <laughs> I had incredibly low. No wonder hope. I've been so successful then when the bar's been so fucking low. Yeah. I'm well, not just, not because I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't fucking know you. Right. It's, right. I had low hopes because it was just like, everything was kind of the same. Everyone was wearing shirts with like some kind of fruit on it of some type. <laughs> Everyone had some kind of like handlebar mustache. Everyone had like, you know, shaken drinks for just a couple of years. And then right. they turned into a brand ambassador of some kind. And then they <laughs> went back and then they were like, I'm a part-time brand ambassador. I'm also like a fucking, I work at the bar two days a week. But I only work Friday and Saturday because I need to make my money. Right. So it's like, that's that was like what I was just used to. So then we met. Just picture this. Rainy day in Coconut Grove. Mm-hmm. Tom and I sitting at a booth alone mm-hmm. in an empty chugs before it opens. And we get to talking. And it's like 90 minutes deep. Yeah. Right. So then <clears throat> I show you the bar. Oh, Christ. Right. I show oh, you the I bar. I remember this, man. Right. So then I built the bar. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was already fucking pissy when you already had <laughs> all kinds of like, you know, grunts and stuff about the whole thing. Yeah. We'll talk more about your obsession with freezers later. Yeah. But, you know, I think at that point you didn't really understand what it is to be a part of a company like this. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's it. The the growth process Mm -hmm. or whatever. But what fascinated me the most of that whole thing, we got to know each other. I thought you were a good dude. Um, I was hoping that you would take the job. Was that your initial question to me? Or I think not initial, but like one of the last things that you didn't directly want to ask. And I just came out and I just said, are you trying to ask me this was Mm. you kept beating around the bush about. So what happens after we're done opening all these things? Yeah. And I'm like, well, I mean, we just then we have to go back to square one and we have to make them better. He's Mm -hmm. like, no, but what happens? What happens to me? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, let me get this straight. You think that I'm going to employ you? open this stuff, benefit from your work, and then fire you after? Well, I think like that was that was more, that was a question that was more reflective of uh, my lack of experience, not necessarily something that I thought the company was going to do, but going into an interview- No, I get it. This magnitude with a position this big, I was like, well, I do the thing, and then what happens after I- I actually didn't take it like you were taking a dig at me at all. I right. thought you were just Which taking it- Which it wasn't. No, I, wasn't. I know. I. I think that it's just a dig at the industry in general and how fucked people are. Yeah. yeah I and I just that. remember looking at you and saying, no, mm-hmm. then we go back and we make everything exceptional. Right. We've done things that are great. And, you know, obviously things are a work in progress, but then mm-hmm. we have to go back to square one and say, what can we do better to make this thing not right. just really good, but great. And I've always thought about that. I've always thought about that, that part of the conversation the most because... <clears throat> It just shows like how unloyal the whole industry is. Yeah. You know, like, and then when you find a group of like humans that you're like, right. And that everyone gets on, you know, then it changes. But that I took that away from our interview and it stayed with me for a long time. Wow. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I know know we've we've talked about it briefly. Um, I like that. It's good to know. That's good to know. But no, you're right. It's uh 
you know, I think when you start hitting your, and it really depends on where you are from a professional standpoint, I think, especially when you work like the front line or when you're a foot soldier, by the time you get to your early to mid thirties and things are still kind of the same or you're still kind of doing the same thing, it's like, well, you know, where is the loyalty? Thanks to our sponsor, Aganorsa Leaf Cigars. Aganorsa Leaf is renowned throughout the world for its signature flavor that possesses all the great attributes of Nicaraguan terroir, along with classic Cuban aroma and flavor. Aganorsa Leaf is pleased to announce a brand new edition of Guardian of the Farm, Cerberus, named after the mythical three-headed hound that stood watch at the gates of Hades. This exciting new Nicaraguan puro uses 100% Aganorsa leaf tobacco and is wrapped in Aganorsa's new Corojo 2012 cover leaf, which adds a level of complexity to the blend, adding light spice and a rich, smooth body to the blend. When you smoke one of our world-class blends, you will experience the difference between ordinary tobacco and Aganorsa leaf. That's why we say our leaf is our strength. Learn more about Aganorsa leaf and use their store locator and find a cigar shop near you that carries their products at www.agonorsaleaf.com. The two of us smoke Agonorsa Leaf cigars often. We also offer them to a lot of our guests, like, for example, Dave Arvello, who every time I post a picture of a, a Cerberus mentions to me in my DMs or in a text how cool the band is, which it actually is a pretty slick-looking band. Um, but also, I just want to note a little personal anecdote here so it's not all totally straight-up red. I can say that uh, Michael Beltran will absolutely not only vouch for the quality of Aganorsa cigars. Yeah. But you met a uh, Miami legend and handed him an Aganorsa cigar. I did meet uh, uh, a Miami legend. I was smoking nearby Alonzo Morning, and we had a conversation about cigars, and he handed me one of his, and I went inside. I bought this exact same cigar, and I handed Alonzo Morning this Aganorsa cigar, and I said, try this. Thank me later. I mean, if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. Aganorsaleaf.com introducing the newest line from jura state cigars 20 acre farm is a complex refined and medium body cigar with a super oaky and cedary notes accompanied by a whisper of white pepper and a bright hint of citrus built at la gran fabrica drew estate in nicaragua using a velvety and i mean velvety Ecuadorian Connecticut shade grown wrapper. Under that wrapper is a sun-grown Habano binder and a filler blend of Nicaraguan tobaccos from Esteli and Jalapa in perfect balance with the opulent and majestic Florida sun-grown leaf. Florida sun-grown is also the name of the farm where that tobacco is lovingly grown and harvested by Jeff Borshoix, who's the guy you see in his video playing behind us, uh, on his pristine 20-acre plot of land near the central Florida town of Claremont. I have actually been to that farm, along with plenty of other cigar tobacco farms in Mexico, Central America, and the Dominican Republic. And what Jeff, who, by the way, is a very nice guy, there's actually a cigar box signed by Jeff hanging on my wall. Uh, what Jeff is doing there is super legit. Uh, so it's always cool to see products like his, which is the only premium cigar tobacco grown in Florida um, in products from a company like Drew Estate. Plus, 20 Acre Farm being a Drew Estate product means it's the creation 
of Master Blender and Pancom podcast guest, Willie Herrera. Support our guests and sponsors. Get it online. Ask your local cigar shop about 20 Acre Farm by Drew Estate. Learn more about Drew Estate and use their store locator to find a cigar shop near you that carries their product. Where's the longevity? Where's the loyalty? Like, what happens next? Yeah, I mean, I had with the whole thing. I had felt a lot of like being stabbed in the back in my career, but I was also, I think, more of my career has been. I was part of really great teams. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe not necessarily. not necessarily great companies, but great teams. Right. And um, I think I took that with me, and I think that's kind of like the mantra we have. I feel like I've been, and I, it doesn't phase me anymore, but like wronged more um, as like the boss boss than I have as like uh, a number two or a number three. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like elaborate on that more when you, when you mean about being wronged. Yeah, well, you know, like, you know, you feel like you have you have a good person at a place and you put a lot of work into them or whatever and then right. they end up doing super something super fucked up to you or okay. no calling, no showing mm-hmm. forever and you never see them again until they're working at Blackbird on a Saturday. Right. Um, you know, something along those lines. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the I think the loyalty is is it's an interesting perspective especially for us because like our company is ran by people that have been in the trenches for a long time. Right. It's not like someone who went to, you know, what's a really good Cornell for hospitality or whatever the fuck. And, you know, they came out and they were like, I'm a beverage director now. Right. No, I mean, like, I think you look at, you look at you, especially, I think you look at Brittany, Georgia, myself, Adrian, everyone, everyone's been like a, hardcore frontline foot soldier for a long time Mm -hmm. a long time you know there's pro and there's pros and cons to that right i think like extricating yourself from service and taking yourself away from that that side of the job to focus on you know the kind of back of house minutiae administrative stuff for me there's there's uh there's a lot of value in that but i also realized i've definitely found it difficult in the past you know when we opened the gibson for example right um you know, we were we were there, you know, like a day off here and there, but probably like about two or three months nonstop mm-hmm. in service, running food, running we, drinks. Before, when it was uh, the mighty, we were there. Yeah, that much also. Yeah, but um, the the one thing, and you know, we'll we'll take these conversations in different directions. I think one of the reasons why the Gibson is so special to us as individuals within the company and for the company in general and i think why it's doing so well and hopefully doing so well is that like we were we were in that space in the trenches in the front line for like days on end days on end and i think i think you can start to see the fruits of those labors you know now that we're starting to step back i think that the gibson is as great as it is one for that too because I think our <clears throat> director group and our company as a whole uh, really does well with 
like variances of concepts, like <clears throat> from super fine dining to fine dining to a diner mm-hmm. to a tavern to, you know, Miami's version of Cheers, which is Taurus. Right. You know, like we do all those layers very well because I think we all very much appreciate them. Right. For what they can be and what they should be. Right. So it's not like looking at it, looking at this thing and saying, okay, but this is what everyone says it is and it should be like that. We're saying, well, it could be more. Right. And I think the people in that room are, I mean, they're that good, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but I think that the Gibson is, is a really good example of, for me, with you on the team, I mean, I don't know if I would have been as prone to do the Gibson the way that we did it without you part of the company. Thank you. Yeah, that that's something that's also crossed my mind. Because what... it's like, you know, like I could we could do great food, mm-hmm. but in that space to be what it is, if we can't do great cocktails, because... I, I'm not a beer person Mm -hmm. and really I don't think anyone else on the company is like specializes in beer. Everyone Mm -hmm. appreciates beer, but like specializes in it. Mm -hmm. No. Um, You know, you need a great cocktail and you need a really solid wine program. Yeah. So I think that's the only reason why we could execute that in that space, which is like, I mean, that space had been ran through a million times. Right. And no one, uh, did what we did with it they did what they thought you know they could but we just have such strong people in every department you know right food beverage wine like and it's like okay so let's do this thing and all three facets of that are great and service on top of it is exceptional yeah so it's like you know but we've talked about it too like the back bar at the gibson is like it's a piece of art right you know i like I've had a couple of conversations about this and I think when it comes to the back bar of the Gibson, when you talk about the Gibson in general it's like a beverage, you know, the beverage program at the Gibson or you're talking about the back bar or the bar in general, I think, uh, you know, people have given me like a pat on the back, uh, a pat on the back and they said, good job, this is great, this is what the neighborhood means uh, needs and that's great but I think one of the reasons why the Gibson has been so, so successful, right, and I'm going to take myself out of the equation, it's because yourself and the rest of Ariel Hospitality Group put the right person in place and gave them the autonomy and the freedom to be able to execute something that they thought was necessary. That's where I think a, a lot of the plaudits should go to in terms of, you know, Tom did a great job, sure, but being able to like give someone a certain amount of freedom and get the right person in to be able to execute something that makes sense in that space, that's a rarity. That's a rarity in Miami and it's a rarity in, you know, in other parts of the world too. Well, I'll quote the late, great Nipsey Hussle, (laughs) which is if you're the smartest person at the table, then you're failing. Right. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, I love cocktails. You know, I love cocktails. Mm -hmm. I could sit there and you can make me 10 different things and I'm probably going to talk about all 10 of them. Mm -hmm. I'm going to enjoy them or whatever. But I can't do what you do, you know, and you can't do what I do. Right. And neither one of us can do what Brittany does. Right. And none of the three of us can do what Adrian does. Right. So it's like, it's just, it's a, it's a true team effort, you know? Anyways, since we're, we're going to be done stroking each other for a little bit, um, let's go. Cause obviously d- due to your accent, people are going to know you're not actually from Kendall in Miami. Right. So let's tell the people 
where you came from. The story? Sure. All right. So um, <clears throat> I was born in Middlesbrough, uh-huh. which is the team that I support. That's a soccer team. Fo- it's, not it's football. Football. Right. I mean, all right, football team. Okay. Just before we start getting messages on Instagram Live, correcting the situation. Can you Instagram Live us? Because we'll get a lot of shit for this yeah. one. Especially with... Absolutely not. Espe- <laughs> Come on. Especially right. with America... Especially with USA, England on Friday. Go on. So <clears throat> I was born in Middlesbrough, but I grew up in Redcar, which is a super small seaside town um, about 20 minutes down the road. Mm. Um, it is, I was about to say it was, is technically like an industrial town, residential heavy, but there's a lot of uh, metalworks and steelworks and metallurgy around that area. Um, I think they discovered like iron ore and, and you know, started manu- manufacturing steel in the late 1800s. So that's why the town exists. Um, and that's where I grew up. And I moved to Newcastle. Uh, I moved to Newcastle when I was like 18, 19. Um, I went to study journalism at the University of Sunderland. Um, so I moved like an hour north. Sunderland reminded me of back home. Sunderland was a shithole and reminded me of the shithole that I used to living which was my hometown and Newcastle was a bit more like culturally relevant it had like an art scene it had a great night scene uh, great nightlife good bars decent restaurants it was just a more lively city um, and out of a lot of the northeastern cities and towns that <clears throat> are technically fallen by the wayside because of hard industry because of coal mining or lack thereof from the you know from what happened in the 70s and the 80s of the Thatcher era, it was one of the only cities which was really thriving in the Northeast. So I moved to Newcastle and I studied journalism uh, at the University of Sunderland. Um, We'll talk about this later because I don't think anyone knows about how I actually got into hospitality and food and beverage like full time. But uh, I graduated, I took on a second job as a um, like a bar back busser kind of person. I was a barista during the day for like a mainstream generic uh, like coffee place called Costa Coffee. So I'd work there during the during the day and then I bar backed in the evening and I was like, you know what? I kind of like this. And that was in 2008. Um, and then since then, I spent a little bit of time in Australia uh, just to kind of travel a little bit, but I ended up working and living mainly in Brisbane. I went back to the UK and in... October 2010 is kind of when I got my big break from like a bartending perspective. I started working at a bar called Bramble in Edinburgh, um, which at the time was about four or five years old. It was still um, one of the most talked about. It is today in the UK, but back then it was it was doing some really kind of cutting edge, crazy different stuff. You know, the um, Silver Line in DC, Ryan Shetty, mm-hmm. I, <clears throat> I would, I would, I wouldn't say I took his job, but he ended up moving down to London to kind of further his career. So there was a space that opened up and I ended up taking over from him. Um, And I was at Bramble for about a year and a half. Uh, Bramble was super eye-opening from the perspective of working for like a super small company and a super small team, both of which were incredibly tight and very family-orientated. I still keep in touch with the majority of the, the people that I work with uh, today, especially the owners, Mike and Jess. Um, so I was at Bramble for about a year and a half. Um, and then I moved down to London in June, 2012. I would have been around 26. And I started working at the super iconic 
very well known, historically important, the American bar at the Savoy Hotel. So white jacket, hello sir, how are you? The five-star service, you know, the whole kind of theater that you associate with old school European um, hotels. And I was there for about two and a half years. Um, I did a little competition called the Cardi Legacy, which we can also talk about later on. Um, and then I moved stateside. I moved to uh, moved to New York. Actually, this is this is great because it's which my part. Was it when you <clears throat> lived in the most dangerous city in the world? The most dangerous city in the world. This is what everyone keeps telling me that you say that you you lived in the most dangerous city in the world. Who says that? You know who says that. <laughs> it doesn't sound like he doesn't know. He does. What's the most dangerous city in the world? I don't know. It's either Red Car or Edinburgh or I, I mean know. Red Car's the most brutal city, uh, the most brutal town in the world. That's there you for go. sure. Well, That's yeah. it. Yeah. Wait, what's the distinction between brutal. most violent and most most dangerous, most brutal? Yes. This sounds like a like the thing that uh, Dave Arvello claims to be. He's the most the most brutal <clears throat> blood bowl player in the world. Town. Town. There, Town. There she is. <laughs> well, you know, like, there's, there's this joke where it's like the, you know. Brittany Rothwell is chiming in. He definitely said it. The most dangerous city in the world? I'm... Town. 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 Oh, town. Town, town with gen- three ends. Oh, yeah. It was awful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, middle. No, actually, no. She's getting mixed up. It was, it was one of the most purest. What? One of the most, one of the most purest. Uh, like purest P U or P O O? No, definitely not purest. Poor. It was a poorest. It was like income wise. Poor. 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 <laughs> one of the poorest. Okay, I'm sorry. One of the poorest. Okay. Yeah, one of the one of the poorest parts of England. You're saying most. You're saying most purest. Okay, so poorest. It was the poorest. Of all of the things, it was the poorest. One of them, yeah. Right, yeah. Got, got it. it. Yeah. Now I understand. Yeah. And what was the age in which you got into your first fight? Um, I want to know all this before we go stateside. But I had like a lot of detail Ooh. on the first fight, too. Yeah, I want to know. So I remember I was, uh, I lived on Borough Road in Redcar, and I was fucking around with this guy. We were play fighting, and then it kind of got a little bit nasty. And then I think I ended up chasing him down the street. And because I was a super fast runner, as I was approaching him from behind, I just gave him a shove. Um, He fell over, just absolutely started bawling. And I was like, all right, whatever. Went back home. A couple of hours later, his mum came over and was just like, I think think you might have broke my son's collarbone. I was like, I didn't touch him. And how how old were you? If I lived in Borough Road, I would have been nine or ten. All right. Okay. I mean, like actual actual fisticuffs. I had a, I had a couple of them at school. A couple of them at school. Well, what school? Age? Give me an age. Like proper fist fisticuffs would have been twelve, thirteen. Got it. Love that. Mm. So now Tom is how old? And he comes stateside. <clears throat> so I moved stateside. Um, in November 2014. In fact, this Friday will be my eight-year anniversary in the States. So I would have been 28, 29. Oh, so late. Late 20s. Still, still, like with hindsight, still fairly young. 
not not as mature as I should have been. But yeah, so I moved stateside, moved to New York, I moved to Brooklyn, I slept on a friend's couch, Thanksgiving. Uh, That's tomorrow. November 2014, yeah. Well, it was Thanksgiving when I flew over, um, which at the time was the 25th. It was a month before Christmas. And I was in New York for about four years. I started off at um, Boy. I kind of did a, a bit of a reset on my career, which we'll also talk about. I started working at Boy, which is what I would call within the Milk and Honey family. Um, and I stayed within that family for a couple of years. I also worked at Dodge Kills and Fresh Kills uh, for a moment. And I was in... Wait, wait. <clears throat> we don't need to talk about it later. Tell me about the reset. Oh, so, I mean, basically, I was I, four or five months fresh off the, off the back of like a global title win right so i competed in a global competition ah. won it and then decided to i'd already i'd already had this kind of planned out in my mind what i what i wanted to do and where where it is that i wanted to go um and this is going to be really a really interesting subject for us to talk about in general but i decided that i wanted to go to new york and i wanted to work at attaboy and i knew for a fact that i have to start from the bottom which I was fine with because there was some things there was some things in that room right because it was the old milk and honey space at 134 Eldridge there were a lot of things in that room that were special to a lot of people that I don't think many people get to experience either from a guest perspective or from being able to be part of a team and, and work in that environment you know what I mean and I think that space for me is probably the most important space that's happened to international cocktail culture in the last 50 years hands down I don't think many places come close to it. And so I was like, if I've got to start from the bottom, if I've got to bust tables and bar back and run the door, run the floor, whatever, I was like, that's fine. I'd, I'd rather do that and kind of find out, you know, how milk and honey works in their order of operations because I think it's such a special place. And I think what they've done in terms of like the ripples that you can see in the international community, cocktail community, can't really be measured. <clears throat> and so... I remember at the time feeling like, and this is this is where I wished I would have resisted my environment and the people, all of the people around me, um, not the ones that cared, but a lot of people around me. This is where I started feeling pressure from people who are like, well, like, why are you going there? Like, what well, you should be a head bartender there. You should be a bar manager. And I was like, yeah, it's, it doesn't quite work like that. And they're like, yeah, but you've just done this and you've just come back off the, winning, off, off the back of winning that. And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. And there were certain aspects of me moving to New York where, like, I carried it with me. But for the most part, I try to acknowledge its importance, but not have it at the forefront when you know talking to people about where it is that I'd been working or what it is that I'd done. And so, um, you know, from from my from my perspective and from uh, what it was that I wanted to do, I was more than happy throwing away throwing away putting aside like a lot of opportunities from a financial standpoint and also from like a reputation building standpoint especially in Europe where it would have been easier for me to stay and it would have been easier for me to do events and like engagements and get paid and do media oriented stuff it would have been easier for me to do that compared to going stateside and starting from scratch in a city where no one gave a fuck but I still went because it was something that I thought was important and something that I wanted to do so moved to New York. I was there for a, a couple of years. I found New York um, found New York very tough. I think it's an incredible city that people should always have the opportunity to go and live in if they ever have 
the chance to do so. Not everyone does, and that's fine. But I think if you ever get an opportunity to live and work in New York, whether it's for like a short-term situation or for longer, I think you should take it because it's an incredible city. I think it's probably a little bit different nowadays post-pandemic. Um, you know, but it's it's New York is very intoxicating. It, you go and visit it; it's it's like heroin. It just kind of sucks you in. It gives you the impression and makes you feel as though like you can be there or that you can belong there. And then by the time that you get there, it's like okay, well, the grind and the reality is quite different. Mm. But um, spent time in New York. That's also where I met my um, my now wife uh, Ellie, and that is essentially where the, the, the story takes a bit of a different direction because Ellie's American and we get married and Ellie's been living in New York for probably about twice, more than twice the amount of time that I have been living there. And her parents are retired and live in Miami and her um, in-laws were also in Miami with our uh, niece and soon-to-be nephew. <clears throat> and so as we're in our early 30s and we're thinking about what is it we do next? Do we want to buy property one day? what is it that we want to do from a professional standpoint? Do we still keep doing what what it is that we want to do? And how can we do that being around like a family unit? The conversation, the conversation comes up about like, well, if we're going to be around a family, is it going to be my family or is it going to be Ellie's family? And, you know, I think the idea of going back to the UK would have been okay. But I think the fact that I was halfway through a green card application and her family lived in Miami and both of us were quite enamored with Miami because um, I think Miami is a great city. And I think had anyone told me that I was going to end up living here in my 20s, I would have been like, mm, I don't know about that. But, you know, <clears throat> the weather, the lifestyle, I think uh, the food and beverage scene as it stands and as it's going, um, I love living here. And so me and Ellie moved down to Miami uh, at the end of 2018. Um, I started working at the Blue Bar, the Fountain Blue on Miami Beach. So I basically threw away all the credentials that I'd ever earned in my career to just take home a big paycheck, pouring vodka sodas, which was Is fun. that what it was? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. I've never been there, so I have no idea. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it was, it was a, I don't know what it is now. It's probably not too far off, but it was a eight to $10 million a year bar just in the lobby. And those those kind of jobs, just just for the record, those kind of jobs are called unicorn jobs because no one ever leaves them because there's like bartenders that have been there for a decade that are like 40, 45. So that kind of tells you what you need to know about that. But I ended up getting a job there. Um, it was fun while it lasted until the pandemic, until the ban pandemic kicked in, which was uh, February, March, 2020. March. Yeah, it was around the time that I had surgery on my knee after tearing my meniscus and ACL playing football soccer football mm -hmm. football and um, football. <clears throat> yeah and during the pandemic I did some night shifts at Amazon I worked at Grove Liquor uh, for a couple of months did you work I... at Publix no it was Georgia oh that's right that, that, was, that was Georgia that was Georgia that's um, right and so I worked at I worked at Grove Liquor and then I started bartending again just for a couple of places in Miami and then I started working at Mila which was the kind of first major bar gig that I landed post-pandemic. And then this opportunity came up with Area Hospitality Group. And it, to, to be honest, you know, we talked about it a little bit. This is an opportunity that I didn't think would ever kind of come my way before the pandemic. And had I still been working at the Blue Bar and the Fountain Blue, I would have been happy to just skate along. But a lot of what it is that I've done throughout my career, um, as much as creating 
cocktails and lists and coming up with things is fun. I've always found, especially from like my early days at Bramble, to a lesser extent the American bar, but it was still it was still relevant there. I've always prided myself on execution and operations and logistics and training. So I've always been more bothered about putting the cogs within the machine to be able to make the machine uh, turn as opposed to making the machine produce pretty things for one of a better kind of comparison. So so since after you accepted the job here, mm -hmm. what has been your experience for the last year and six months? My experience is in like with the company or? Well, no, not with the company. <clears throat> this isn't a commercial for the company. Right. It's more just like moving towards the fact <clears throat> that you now you're a beverage director, you're mm -hmm. responsible for several different outlets. Mm -hmm. You took very personal coming up with the Ariat cocktail menu. You now, I mean, I think the Gibson is probably your best expression of yourself yeah, for the most absolutely. part. Um, <clears throat> you know, and then you have stuff that's, you have like every layer of cocktail within the portfolio. You have a diner that has things that mm -hmm. are tasty and easy. Mm -hmm. And then you have area, which is very thoughtful and like took a lot of, I think, I think it took a lot out of you. And then you have the Gibson, which was, you know, I remember I walk into a meeting, I think it was you, me and Brittany and maybe one other person. I don't remember who. And I was like, what do you guys think about just like opening up, you know, like a really cool restaurant with like a big bar. And you guys were like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, ah, well, what do you think? You know, like, eh, perspectively, like, what if we did this thing? And you're all kind of like, because eh, we, Laurel has been in the works for two and a half years. So even before right. you were hired, I, we had been working on that project. Right. So here we are, you know, like gearing up to do this thing. And then I remember I kind of strolled along to an opportunity and I was like, you know, this is something I really wanted to do. How does everyone else feel about this? Right. And everyone's kind of like, what do you mean? Right. I remember <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, bigger job, I think, responsibility-wise. I think it takes uh, <clears throat> being a director is like you give up slices of yourself for, like, the pie. Right. And you try to get everyone to understand your vision. But it's tough when you're not, like, over their shoulder because as much as you want to say, I don't know if you'd say that you're not a micromanager, you are. So am I. Definitely so is Brittany Rothwell. So, like, how has that been? Uh, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. <laughs> you know, because it's... <clears throat> I think yeah. when... Yeah. <laughs> when, when we realized that Laurel was going to be the seventh property, like, the way that I saw it was that, like, on a, on a you know, on a day-to-day -day or on a week-to-week -week basis, I could probably lend, like, my full self to about three properties that week mm -hmm. or to, to like any given week. You know what I mean? In terms of being able to be in a space, look at what's going on, revisit that space at some point later on that day or later on that week and being able to do that consistently, but in a way that makes sense and in a way where like my presence is felt like in a positive way, there's like, you know, I can, I can do that at three locations, doing it at, doing it at six and seven and having to spread myself so thin but still be available for you know for people who want support for people who want training for people who want conversations it's been it's been challenging like you know i think 
I think the time the time management aspect between the the properties, the different properties, and what it is that they deserve in terms of what it is that they do for the company has probably been the biggest challenge. You know, and then in that process, mm-hmm. I'll still recall because um, that night has been more of a haze for a lot of people than actual reality. But I still recall the night that we won a star when. I was actually in a car with uh, the chefs from Bashor and someone else. I don't really remember. Mm-hmm. But then you and Brittany FaceTimed me, which Brittany does not remember. Shocker. Right. Which she told me. Shocker. She was like, you didn't even talk to me that night. I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, like, that was also very personal for you. Yeah, it's it's very, you know, I haven't really spoken about my feelings about this. It's been very bizarre because... We activated um, we activated a menu at Ariette that week, mm-hmm. that week. Um, and it was a menu that I spent a, a lot of time on. You know, there's a little bit of joke within the within the company that it probably took a little bit longer than it than it should have done, <laughs> right? Which yeah, is an understatement. But it's also, you know, I I started going into a world that I wasn't really familiar with, right? And I remember, <clears throat> I remember when we've had this conversation a couple of times. I remember that Tuesday when you interviewed me, you know, there was, there was this, this idea that like we would always push ourselves a little bit further into an area where we, we weren't particularly, uh, we weren't an individual, uh, in terms of our expertise, you know? So I, you want to talk about classic cocktails? I'm I'm all about that. But moving into a moving into a space that does something a little bit different, that does something a bit more contemporary, that is reflective of like 21st century mixology, that is that is still a bit of an unknown to me. And doing something in doing something in the area space, which you know had a lot of connections with the environment, with the company with the bar that made sense that was on brand but also still like very true to what i think makes sense and what i think makes sense for for the company and and the restaurant took took a lot of time and it was it was this very very weird perfect storm where we knew this announcement was coming right there was there was a lot of love and a lot of late nights that went into that menu prep and i remember it, it did come down at the wire i think i was up till about 6.37 a.m. on Monday, that Monday morning, sending off the menu to Adrian to print and getting everything batched and getting everything ready, chiseling ice out of the freezer upstairs behind the bar and getting everything set so that when I came in, because I knew for a fact if if I'd slept in or if I'd gone to bed and not woke up, I would have been fucked. So I got everything ready. And then I got up and I just kind of walked into the bar to be able to set it up. And then I was working service at Ariette and it was one of the, it was one of the wildest kind of experiences because <clears throat> you know I felt like I was in I felt like I was in the lungs of a restaurant because I could just feel everything breathe and move and like contract and expand and the only the only real room that I've ever been in I've been in like a lot of special rooms right well, one of the only rooms that I could really kind of uh feel about with regards to what Ariette reminded me and made me feel like and some of the other rooms that I've been in were places like Bramble and Attaboy you know small rooms 
where like <clears throat> the energy that the people bring and like the expertise that the staff bring ended up creating this like living, breathing thing. She's alive. Yeah, yeah, she is. And um, I remember, I remember the menu going live. I remember getting some great support. I remember seeing these things come out, and it was and it was great. And it was also around the same time that Michelin was being announced. Um, and I remember when it was announced, it was it was, and this is this is what's really wild. It was very euphoric, very euphoric. There's been times where like I've been a part of winning something or being announced in something that was successful and sometimes it's been great and sometimes it's been a massive relief but this was euphoric and the the peculiar thing was was that really i don't think i've ever told you this like, i don't really have any right to celebrate the success of that start because i haven't really had an awful lot to do with it and that's that's how i feel you know just being in the different spaces that i've been in throughout the company of the last year year and a half um area is the time that I've spent uh, the least the least amount of time in and you know I wouldn't say that my celebrations were disingenuous I just felt like I had more of a reason to celebrate being part of what it was that, that was achieved because I think first and foremost the um, the celebrations should should definitely be directed towards people like yourself definitely Brittany definitely Andrew um, and big double yeah and being being a part of that was a uh, being a part of that was a huge privilege but um i don't feel like it was something that i deserved and i still don't and i might do next year well you know i think it's interesting because the but i going back to what i said earlier was i had thrown in the towel for a beverage director right. because no one really understood the purpose of the company right right you just exemplified the purpose of the company. It's not one person. It is the whole thing. Right. You know, like, I share the star with Rafa. Mm -hmm. I share the star with Emo. Right. I share the star with Yemi. We share the star together. It's a team effort, right? right? Like, and that to me is like why that star was so special. Right. It doesn't matter like when you came into the space, but you still impacted the space some way. And the truth is like, and I think no one will ever quite understand it the way that I understand it. But like that restaurant, more than anywhere I've ever worked, is a living and breathing thing. Yeah. The people give it its life. It responds. It just, and you know, like to an everyday diner, they may not get that. But to someone who really appreciates the industry, they'll get it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like what we've had in the past is, you know, people trying to impose their will on the space. Mm -hmm. And it never responds well. Right. It, it just, it just is, it just doesn't, you know, like it is an incredibly special feeling space when the people are connected to what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens up there. And that's why like the star is as important to you as it is to me, as it is to anyone else. It doesn't matter how long you were here. There were people that worked here for a week. Right. When we want to star. Right. And good for them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And then there's people like me and Gio that have been here for seven years. Right. You know, so it's like it, it's it. That's why, like the star whole thing, and like you feeling the way that you felt, and Brittany's been here for I don't know three and a half. It feels like a million years, but like right. three and a half years or whatever it is. Georgia, Ashley, Manny, like all these things. Manny was one of the first people that came to dine here, and now he runs it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just like that to me is why 
you know, in the in the effort to find a beverage person. And look, Andrew's here. Andrew is also a beverage person, mm-hmm. um, but also exceptional at service and so on and so forth. How long have you been here, Drew? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Two and a half years, seven years, one and a half years, three years, five years. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's important to everyone across the board. And I think everyone kind of felt the same way. Right. Which is what made it so special. And I remember that phone call like it was yesterday, right? Because mm-hmm. like I, you know, like I, I was crying. You guys were crying. Everyone was crying. People in the, people in the, oh, uh, Philip, uh, Philip Franklin Lee was in the car also. And he was like, man, your people are amazing. I'm like, I know. I'm very lucky. Because my people feel as strongly about this as I do. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a me thing. And that's why like, and for you, I like, I feel like the beverage thing isn't just a you thing. It's an everyone thing. It's a teaching thing. It's a history thing. It's like understanding of a culture thing. Like mm-hmm. beverage is a culture. Like yeah. it goes super deep. It's not just, you know, Negroni is what, like a million years old. I feel. Yeah. It's just one of those things that it's like this, some of these cocktails have been drank for hundreds of years. Right. And I love that about proper cocktail culture. That leads me to Nick putting his hand up. Okay. Because you're saying that leads me, so I feel like there's a subject change there. But I'd like to, uh, maybe for for my benefit and the benefit of others in the audience who like me are sort of like outside of this world, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned not feeling like this was a thing for you to celebrate. So, Mike, you've mentioned a lot, like, the mission now is retainer gain. Yeah. Right? So going into the next year, when you imagine, okay, what is the scenario where you do feel like you can celebrate? What does that look like? Like, what what is... I don't, know, I, I don't know if to frame it as, like, your contribution or the scenario. I'm going to say I'm going to say this. I, you know, when you ask questions, I'm, nev- I'm never going to tell you I don't want an answer. <clears throat> but I'm going to say this. I know what it looks like for us and for him. I'd rather not talk about that though. Okay. I'm superstitious, man. What do you want to talk about? No, no, no. Well, I mean, so let me um, maybe if I if I frame it this way, like what what okay, so let me ask the inverse of the question. What was it that made you feel like it wasn't for you to celebrate? Is that a fair question to ask? Yeah, yeah, it is. Because okay. I don't think I had as much, if any, influence on the space compared to a lot of the people that I worked with. And so, like, while I feel as though I, I absolutely did share a lot, of, a, a lot of happiness and tears that night, right, that I felt were, it was real. The, the emotions were real because it was, you know, I was working with a group of people and I was working with and for and part of a company that was striving towards that. But my impact or influence on that was minimal. This is why I disagree. I disagree because I think the energy and the culture you brought to the beverage department of the whole company Mm -hmm. changed the dynamic of even before you had an imprint on the cocktails change the dynamic of the way we approach cocktails from day one. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. So even if you did, you didn't impact, like it wasn't your thoughts on a page. Mm-hmm. It was your energy and the culture you brought in general changed the entire culture of the company when it came to beverage. It's the same thing as like when Brittany became involved with service. Right. 
the energy behind service changed. The person responsible for all these things before you guys got here was me. Right. So like, <clears throat> I mean, I'll definitely take shots at myself. Like I'm, <laughs> I, I can't do what either one of you guys do. So like the energy brought to the situation was not what it should have been. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Just the, the expertise, the knowledge, the foresight wasn't there. So right. I think even before you got your <clears throat> digits into the situation of like actually putting stuff on paper, mm -hmm. the culture you brought is what changed. And I think that's why your impact is much heavier felt in the star than what you think it is. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. But that brings me to my next statement. Awesome. Which is... So, and I have this conversation several times, all the time. Okay. You know, Miami is known as like a cocktail place. <laughs> for better or for worse, yeah. What, what are your feelings about Miami cocktail culture in comparison <clears throat> to the rest of the country and the rest of the world? All right. So, let me see if I can summarize this. I think, um, I think there's clearly been like a, a lot of, uh, there's been an influx of tourists into Miami, both domestic and international over the last 10 or 15 years specifically, which means that with them, they bring certain expectations and or trends and or requests that have an impact on how people drink and how people serve drinks and general bar culture in Miami, right? And this is, this is important because if you look at, you know, you generally look at major West Coast cities like San, uh, like San Francisco and you look at major East Coast cities like New York, to a lesser extent, but, you know, still certainly DC, Boston, Chicago. <clears throat> and when you, when you look at like contemporary cocktail culture, when you trace it back to the kind of mid nineties, late nineties, early nineties, you'll see this, you'll see this pseudo neo speakeasy movement where things became a bit more secret. People were looking at drinks from like a different era, um, again, for better or for worse. And then basically <clears throat> from that moment onwards, you know, when you, when you look at like, especially the, the early to mid nineties, there always seems to be like a, a, a common trend with major cities in terms of drinking trends, in terms of how establishments changed, progressed, um, you know, moved into like different styles of drink making. Like there was a bar once upon a time in New York that used to serve like 70s disco drinks in a craft cocktail environment. And, you know, people that used to work at Death and Company went on to open and uh, established other other bars. One of them was called Maya Well, I believe, a guy called Phil Ward that was like Mezcal focused, which had a huge impact on like Mezcal drinking and Mezcal talk, uh, cocktails. Globally, there was a guy called Joaquin Simo who's from Miami, worked at Death and Company, opened Pour and Ribbons. Both of those places were less kind of speakeasy-ish and still focused on craft cocktails, but focused on like a laid back vibe and a, a bit less pretentious. And my point being is that <clears throat> bars and people that have been affiliated with bars and, and drinking establishments in the East and the West Coast, those cities have gone through like certain and different iterations and you can kind of follow the patterns of what people have drank and how they've drank and where it is that they've drank in terms of the, the environment for the last 20, 20 25 years. Mm -hmm. Miami seems a bit more kind of what I would call higgledy-piggledy, right? Because it's a major what city. What the fuck does that mean? Well, is oh. in like... <clears throat> higgledy-piggledy? Higgledy-piggledy. Like... You know, I don't know an awful lot about the history of Miami drinking and its culture in the last 20 years, but it seems to me like 
you know, and I'm like, I'm I'm not gonna shit on on anyone in this city, but it seems like Miami is a city, uh, citywide have kind of skipped over a few steps that other cities have kind of gone through for them to be established on the global stage when it comes to global cocktail culture, right? And you you could you know we can also look and talk about cities like Sydney and Melbourne, London places in Europe, but I think like <clears throat> Miami seems to have a situation nowadays where some of the drinks that they put out in certain bars and some of the establishments that exist and some of the products that they put out think that it's the best thing that Miami has ever seen. And it's some of the best things that anyone's ever seen. And I don't think that's really the case because I feel as though like we've kind of skipped or we've, we've yeah, we've skipped over a couple of important years, hmm. right? <clears throat> in terms of the maybe should have been certain types of establishments that have opened up, even if it was only for a short amount of time, just so it's had an impact on the city so that the city can look and move on to other things. And I think that, you know, um, I think the city has is, is missed out on, I wouldn't necessarily say opportunities, I just think the city has maybe kind of um, moved in a specific direction and is like, you know, like like Monopoly or like Snakes and Lager, they may have like skipped over a couple of steps. So what it is that they're doing has some kind of like justification or like honesty or integrity with regards to what it is that they're doing. Do you feel like, <clears throat> oh, before I ask a question, mm -hmm. I will say that I think that Miami cocktail culture, in my mind, <clears throat> there's a lot of like really good and there's a lot of really bad. Yeah. There's not a lot of in-between. Right. Right. A lot of the in-between is built off of, like, years of stuff. Years of, like, you know, classic cocktail culture, mm -hmm. understanding of culture, building through, like, generations of, like, I worked here, I worked there, I worked mm -hmm. here, you know, and then you work here and <clears> then you do a thing. And it's either really good or it's really fucking bad. Right. There is no fucking in between, right? Which, which to me, fucking drives me nuts. Because like, I drink a very simple cocktail, mm -hmm. but it's also like you can gauge the kind of place that you're at by saying, "Can I get a Negroni?" and then watching them make it. Right. You just understand mm -hmm. where they're at mm -hmm. by just watching them make it, and then when you watch them make it, you're like, "Okay, right? Maybe I'll just get a gin and tonic." Right. You know, but that's where that's to me Miami's biggest downfall. But also, I think as you continue to see, because I've traveled a good amount for work and for pleasure over the last like year, and you see it a lot of places now. And I think that's just kind of the trend of the way that the world is going because a lot of people don't want to do what you did and what several of us have done, which is, you know, be okay with starting at the bottom and working yourself up and then training other people in the process and being able to do that whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because, which will lead me to my next question. Mm -hmm. I, like that, I like that you look over here. Yeah, because <laughs> you're always, because you're going to be, because you're shocked that I have around. planned questions. Because what happens in today's day, especially in Miami, is, okay, there's, like, um, the Costco.com cocktail competition, right? The what? Costco.com. I'm just making up a, uh, a thing. Oh, sorry. I, I actually I I thought it was a real thing. Sorry. No, I'm making up Go a on. thing. I'm making okay. up a thing. Okay. Just, like, a really meaningless, meaningless oh, cocktail competition. Sure. <laughs> Shut up, Nick. 
and they go and they win the thing mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they're like the best thing since sliced bread and then they can go get a job anywhere and then they go do this thing mm. like do you feel that cocktail competitions have negatively affected the culture of cocktails not just here but elsewhere Ooh. you being a person that won a very important one right yeah right have sorry has have cocktail competitions negatively affected cocktail culture correct um i mean i think i think yes and no i think um tell me the no before you tell me the yes tell me the no because i think when it when it comes let's take global cocktail competitions right that have um some weight behind them so let's talk about diageo world class sure okay let's talk about bacardi legacy to a certain extent um patron have done something recently although i don't think it has as much weight um balls uh, geneva once upon a time did something that uh people used to look up to and care about i not too sure if it's still around or if it, if again if it has as much suction um you know the the one thing that i will say and i'm i'm going to i'm going to tie it in with with mainstream media and i'm going to tie it in with with food and kitchens is that i think um i think cocktail culture and bartending has needed a lot more exposure in uh mainstream media and I think global cocktail competitions uh, is one of the best ways to be able to get the profession um, into the living rooms of um, people who watch TV. What does mainstream media mean to you? Main, when I talk about mainstream media from someone who doesn't watch TV other than like right. things that they're subscribed to, I'm talking about the ability for someone to switch on their TV, either whether it's something that they pay for or whether it's something like Netflix or Hulu or something else, something that they have access to that they can turn on and go to a channel and watch a specific program with regards to a specific subject or something that they like. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you're not talking about like... <clears throat> Go no, just you. You first. No, no, I'm just asking you to get closer to the mic, or pull the mic closer to you, whichever. Well, I I'm just trying to like, cause I don't know, media is such a weird thing. Like this is media right now. This is media yeah, content, right? You know, I think like when you talk about like media coverage, it's like there's so much trash today. Like, well, it well this top, is true. Top ten my ties in Kendall. I mean, um, <laughs> like. <laughs> I mean, I don't. That is I, the list, world that is a listicle coming soon to paid man. Well, this is so. This is this is where we this is where we get into the meat. I love that. Can we do that for the holiday party? Can, where does Pueblito Viejo rank? Oh man, I love that. That's so. We'll talk about that can after. We, that's can, good. can we do an official episode where we take Tom to Pueblito Viejo? I love. Yeah, that's a good idea. This is this is where we get into like the the meat of the whole thing, and I want to ask Nick to kind of semi-mediate this but only when it's necessary because i want to bring in the concept of and the discussion of what you think with regards to uh food and chefs on tv and my point being is that bringing it back around to cocktail competitions and bringing it back around to talking about the media do i think that cocktails have had an impact for better or for worse someone says to lay off a kendall (laughs) (laughs) As a as a Candalian, as a Candalian, I uh, sorry. Do I think? Mess up your do I think? Do I think cocktail competitions have had an impact 
slash a negative impact within cocktail culture. Um, yeah, to a certain extent, I think, um, you know, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but can I, I wonder whether in the course of this, could you call out like, I imagine there's a range, right? So are there uh, competitions or whatever mm -hmm. that maybe make better and worse contributions to the general culture? Um, I mean, I would just say different. And I'm okay. not. I'm not. I'm not being vanilla or political. I'm. I'm just. I'm just going to go with different. Sure. And let's take. Let's take the Azure world class for a, for a second, right? So like the people that have, the people that have generally um, uh, been a been a contestant or a contributor to world class or that have become successful, <clears throat> have done some really incredible things from like a technique and an executional standpoint, right? And that's not. It's my opinion, but it's also a fact, you know. Like so, I worked with Eric Lorenz. Um, he was uh, a world-class participant when he worked at the Connaught Hotel in London in 2009-2010. I worked with him at the Savoy and like his ability to make drinks and his technique was incredible. Um, the majority, if not all of the people that have generally won world-class have gone on to continuously be very successful. Okay. And, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to, to uh -huh. interrupt again, no, no, good. just because we're we're like 126 episodes deep into this and we've yeah. never really had this kind of a conversation about cocktails. When, as maybe just calling out like an, an example of something, mm -hmm. when you call out somebody as having very impressive technique, what's an example of something that you see that you think <clears> like <throat> that person's technique is especially impressive or worth calling out? I mean, te technique is also a loaded term, but when I when I talk about technique, I'm just going to talk about like the drink, the the physical flavor drink side of things, as opposed to the execution. But um, <clears throat> people's ability to like combine very kind of progressive 21st century culinary orientated techniques into a drink. That's what I'm talking about. That that kind of thing is impressive because sometimes like it takes. It takes me a long time to get my head around about just being able to approach doing something like that, right? And I think the Ariette menu is is a good example of something that required like a lot of brain power and needed me to go quite deep into an area of my mind that I had not really ever explored or really ever gone into. And then I see other people just, you know, on the surface effortlessly and flawlessly do this. You know, <clears throat> the the kind of people that take part in uh, Diageo world class. Um, I know some of them. I've not met all of them, but from a from a drink executional flavor perspective, I think it's super impressive and something that I don't think I could do on a daily basis. But props, props to them. But you know, tying it back into Chef, what you were saying, do I think it may have negatively affected cocktail culture? I think it really depends on what it is that you're looking for from a cocktail. And you know, this is this is where I come from, right? You want to you want to start fucking around with gels and spheres or like different ideas and you want to start like clarifying stuff that's that's great okay that's great but i think being able to master the absolute true fundamentals of being able to make someone feel welcome in your establishment to be able to hydrate them from the get-go with water to be able to make them feel at ease and to make them feel in a to 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 have them leave in a better mood than when they first arrived and being able to do that in a way where you serve them a drink right with all the bottles that you have behind you because you know what it is that you're working with i think stuff like that 
is more important than being able to exercise creativity and ego, either within a, either within a, a restaurant hospitality group or on the global stage as part of a cocktail competition. So I think what it is that we we are currently seeing in Miami and other parts of the world, um, to a certain extent, is a trickle down effect of cocktail competitions um, and the creativity that people are deciding to exercise within their fucking God-given right, right? Um, in an environment where I think, you know, <clears throat> in the, what is it, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I think when you go into restaurant companies, specific or certain restaurant companies or restaurant companies and hospitality companies that are ran by a specific kind of individual and a beverage person goes in and says, this is what I think you should do. You should hire me or I'm a consultant. This is why I think you should take me on board and pay me so much money. I think that's that's where the bone of contention really kind of comes to fruition in terms of what I think is important in, in the beverage world in a restaurant and hospitality company. Is it is it fair to say, and I think this is a thing that the, the two of you can play off of, and I'm only jumping in because I was asked to moderate this segment, apparently. Uh, Pseudo-moderate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that the competitions <clears throat> play a much different role in cocktails than they do on the culinary side. Because anytime the competition is brought up in food, mm -hmm. it's generally, I mean, Maybe I'm just speaking for myself and like what I've observed, but it's like poo-pooed as like purely spectacle and you know whatever. Would you I mean, say the, that it's, the it, only it, culinary competition that I take seriously is the Bocustor? Like that's like a true what culinary. Is, what is that? I mean, it's teams from like the USA team, the English team, the French team. The like, I mean, and that's like it's. Incredible, like the coach of the United States is Thomas Keller. Phil Tessier mm -hmm. was like his head chef. It's a chef in press. And I mean, when you look at the food that they do, it's like, I'm like, fuck. Right. <laughs> like there's everything that they do is, <clears throat> and not just them, like all the teams. But case in point, like that's that's the one you'd call out. So it sounds, yeah. it sounds like competition. Chopped is not like a culinary company. Yeah, I mean, what, it's what, a show. Yeah, whatever it might be, but like competition as a category is not something that if you were asked to talk about culinary culture and what's advancing it, you wouldn't call out competition. Whereas it sounds like in cocktail culture, at least from your perspective, competition plays a bigger role than it would for somebody who's on the food side. But I, I think, you to know, to a certain extent, yeah. What's interesting to me, uh, and you can continue to moderate if you want, but is <laughs> like, what is a mixologist and are you a mixologist? Mm. I want to know that. So I, had this, I had this in my notes because uh, I said mixology earlier in the conversation. Well, I just like, I'm, 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 to me, when I hear the word mixology, I think about. The old term, like, you know, my mentor coined the phrase fusion when it came to food, but then right. he also coined the saying that there is also fusion confusion, right? <laughs> and it's like, it, there's always like, you know, fusing, I don't know, whatever the fuck they mm -hmm. want. They want... Tom needs another... Yeah, Tom needs another... Another... Oh, okay. oh, he's, oh he's done. Well, I, I don't know if I'm done, but okay with that. Okay. Uh, and it's like, I don't... I feel like when you fuse things, it's like, it seems like very 
rough or whatever. I just want to make things make sense mm-hmm. and from, I don't know, organically, right? Yep. When I hear like, it automatically turns me off when someone's like, yeah, I'm a mixologist. I'm like, well, okay, you can go fuck yourself. Like, I don't even like, it's just, it, it, it automatically makes me feel like I don't want to take you seriously. Mm-hmm. So is mixology a thing? And are you a mixologist? So I'm going to, I'm going to call Jim Meehan here. Okay. Who is the founder of PDT. All right. In New York. Also worked at, um, Pegu Club with Audrey Saunders back in the day. And there's two, there are two sides to this coin, right? I personally am not a fan of the term mixologist because if, if, if you were to define it just for the sake of going into yeah give me a definition no, like, of what, what mixology what is, what, what means what is this or or you could offer a range right like some people say it's this and other people say it's that but like in, in terms of like what we're tackling like what are we even talking oh about? i I, th- I think and what i would say is that it encompasses the profession of mixing drinks that's that's what i would that's what I would class as a mixologist. Would, would it be fair to say it's the profession of coming up with? Because uh, uh, if I were being, let's say, charitable mm-hmm. to the term, right. I would say the mixologist comes up with the mix and the bartender executes the mix. Uh, right. Well, so, so, so here's the thing. So I, I actually think I think the term, and this is something that once this podcast goes live, I'll probably look at the history of it and then put in the comments i think that the term mixologist is a fairly recent term but i think there's something called a mix mixicologist or mix mixicologist but this this is something that this is something that goes back this is actually something affiliated with a cocktail book in, in the early 1900s right um and so thanks chef <clears throat> Jimmy, <laughs> can we pause to explain what just happened? The one thing I'll say about a mixologist, right, is that a mixologist, a mixologist serves drinks, and a bartender serves guests. Okay, oh, and that that's like that's that's well that's well that's a that's a Jimmy handcourt, and I think that's that's a very poignant. But I also think for people who are like not anti mixologists, but a you know wary of the term and wary of what the term means what i will say is that when it comes when it comes to the consumer side of things and a consumer or a guest starts broaching the subject of mixology or talks to an individual like myself or someone else about mixology truth be told they're actually just trying to pay you a compliment because it's one of the only things that they know that they can get their hands around that they can categorize or pigeonhole to be able to make a connection with what it is that you do that they like. So you are a mixologist? No. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. How, how much of your no? I mean, because on the one hand, you're saying that they're, you know, that's them paying you a compliment and, you know, you're, you're the beverage director at a, you know, company with a Michelin star and a bib. Mm-hmm. How much, if, in an, if you were attempting to be honest, Mm-hmm. How much of that is? How much of your no is humility? No. Oh, none of it. It's it's not about humility at all. It's more okay. just about if if I'm if I'm just working service one night, right? And a guest says to me like, "You are a great mixologist." Okay. I'm not. I'm not going to poo-poo them in any way. Shape. I'm not going to be like, sure. uh, "Okay, well, I'm not a mixologist, but thank you." You know what I mean? Because they're they're just seeing something that I do, and it's one of the only ways that they can connect with me because of things that they've read 
in magazines, or newspapers, or they've seen on TV. But if there is such a thing, why aren't you that? Where when am I not a when am I not like a mixologist? Or why aren't you one? Why did if, you just say no if, to my question? If there, if there you didn't say you said a, no. If, if there is such a thing as a mixologist, why right. are you not one? Because I don't think my job is directly about mixology. I don't think it's exclusively about mixing drinks. And I think like the thing that I pride myself on, which is logistics and operations and trainings and classic cocktails, I'd say that like what, what, what percentage of that is mixology? Very minimal, very minimal. I think like- but you, I, al- you also have a menu in a one-star Michelin restaurant. It's true. Which is all new. True. Not classic. True. Okay. Sounds like you. We might have a mixologist. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like we got a mixologist on our hands, everyone. I am just here to just put that out there. Tom may actually be a mixologist. The rumors might be true. As a sort of like a a bit of a uh, Mike would, I think, would, would agree with this. And I'll even say it a little bit disparagingly. As a bit of a word nerd, mm-hmm. uh, all, I, I understand what is uh, what people are attempting to say with it, right? But I also understand from the perspective of the person who might be considered a mixologist, like there's something, and this is not even remotely a knock on the person who's being described that way, but there's something just inherently douchey about the word. Mm. I, I don't that know, that that I agree with, because, and, because and that's Mike's, an issue. Yeah, but it's more Mike's like not a foodologist, right? And Brit's not a service or an operationsologist, correct? So, and, right. and, and this was actually—I I forget why—but this was a, 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 a <clears throat> thought that was prompted in my mind uh, not too long. I was like, sort of thinking through this thing. I was like, what is the alternative? Like, what would it be called otherwise? And and it sort of led me to a place of like sympathy for the cocktail side of things, like. It's, it's it's a real shame that there's all this creativity happening there and there isn't mm-hmm. a vocabulary for it. Mm. And I there's a, a part of I, I, I sort of understand the resistance from whatever perspective it might be coming to right. that word because it is it, it, it's a clumsy word. If we're just like, yeah. just yeah. like in terms of the vocabulary of it, like why is there an ology here? Why are we right? Why is this the one side of the restaurant business think, that's like being analogized to white lab coats? Yeah, this 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 attachment of the ology yeah. makes it something it's weird. It makes it sound like it's something that's affiliated with education and university and college. Right, and it's, it's not. It's a little odd. It's not. Brittany yeah. would like to say that she actually is a serviceologist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, Brittany. I just, I, I don't even think, I think that the word is fine. I think it's just the culture that has been created behind it. Yeah. Is what, what brings it, what makes, I don't know, it just gives this, this like connotation for me that I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what it is. I feel like it really is that, that like this whole thing, it's an uproar of these people that were just, you know, they were, making margaritas at Applebee's and now they're slanging drinks at some pseudo well-known bar that's really just making fucking gin and tonics and they're saying that they're a mixologist because mm-hmm. they came up with like a strawberry margarita right. riff one day makes them this thing right but it's also like the way and 
this is a conversation I've had several times and like food on the food side, people who consider themselves an artist in my mind, I think that they've completely lost the point. Like what they, you know, like my food is art. Okay. You know, like when I think of art, I think of a, I think of a person that spent months or years conceptualizing a thing. They put it up on canvas and they do it one time. Right. When I think about like what we do with food, it's a craft. You spend several years learning how to make a torsion and then you bang out a torsion and you serve 30 a night. Mm -hmm. And then you have to serve 30 tomorrow and you have to serve 30 the next day. And it's like that to me, albeit like, if you want to put your artistic spin on it, doesn't make you a fucking artist. It makes you a craftsman. And I think that's really like the nuts and bolts of breaking it down is like a young, let's say a young mixologist, right? Mm -hmm. Do they know the nuts and bolts of the craft? Right. Probably fucking not. And I think that's where you lose me. That's like why before I met you, I threw in the fucking towel and I was like, fuck this. I'm over it. It's like I'm completely just disenchanted by this whole thing, especially in Miami, that everything is smoke and mirrors. I went to a bar. I went to a bar a couple of months ago with my very good friends, Zach the Baker and Jose Mendin. Mm-hmm. And we were wait, what? I'm just, I'm, I'm just cracking up because I know that anytime you get really close to the microphone, like hot takes are coming. Well, yeah, I'm just I saying, love it. we, we went, it. we went to this bar. We were waiting for Kush to finish whatever the fuck he was doing so we could <laughs> all go to dinner. And we picked a place that was by the place we were going to. I don't even recall where we were going. And you know, like everything was served with like dry ice mm-hmm. and in a coconut. And like, and I remember, so my buddy, uh, Zach, Mm-hmm. He ordered like a bourbon or I don't know what the fuck he ordered, but they served him uh, vinegar by mistake. I don't even know how the fuck that what? happened. What yeah, I don't, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what because it, it happened before I got there. And then I just got like the aftermath of what happened. And I'm like, <laughs> but they didn't forget the dry ice on the, the two ladies behind us on the two top. <laughs> but they fucked your bourbon up. And it's like, you know, this is where you lose me. Right. This is where. This is why, like, the craft part of food and beverage and service in total is lost. Because no one takes the time to spend the time, like, no one takes the time on themselves Mm -hmm. to learn the craft. And to not only just to learn it, to appreciate it. You know, like, Thomas Keller always said, he's like, you know, you have to enjoy the process. It's not just the final result. If you're just trying to put something on a plate and make it like beautiful like that's cool like one time but it's like enjoying the fucking process and doing that shit every single fucking day and like that to me and and i love that because you know and i'm sure cocktails are the same way but when we talk about food it's like all right so this is the dish so how do we how do we exit like how do we get from a to z how do we get there every day every time Mm -hmm. however many times they order the dish it's the fucking process that's beautiful. Like the dish is obviously like you hope the guest enjoys it, yada, yada, whatever. But it's the process that's beautiful. There's so much thought. There's so much effort. There's so many people. There's so many bodies. We go back to our conversation with Chris Husby and talking about everything is the duck. Right. Right. It's the fucking process, man, that makes it 
beautiful. And that's why when someone tells me that they're a mixologist, do they understand the craft? I, I wonder, um, and, and I want to like jump in here in case this gives you fodder to mm-hmm. you know, fuck around with, but uh, it's been a while since we did a callback to our, our conversation with Ricardo Paullosa. Oh man, what a legend! So Ricardo Paullosa, uh, those these two would those two would probably talk for like. I hours. would love that. Yeah. Oh so man, in hours. September, I just looked it up. It was in September 2020. Oh, was it? Yeah, that we did. Uh, we recorded in his house. So Ricardo Paullosa is a, a good friend of mine. He's in his 60s. He was one of like the foremost art critics of Latin American art in in the world. Um, He's been uh, uh, nominated, I think, for uh, Pulitzer, for poetry, uh, and most of his poetry is based on art. And in part of the conversation that Mike has with him in his house, um, they talk about, like, this distinction of art and craft. And Mm -hmm. in the course of that conversation, Ricardo says two things that I I think are applicable to both of you, where, like... I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's like a humility or whatever, but like I think that you're very reluctant to take on the artist, you know, thing where I don't think you have to be one or the other. I think that in some moments you can be an artist and in some uh, and and to be an effective artist you need to have mastered usually some kind of craft, right? And the to the two things that come to mind that Ricardo says are that uh, he refers to art as a reflection on uh, emotion and ideas and also as being a um, uh, a conversation with your tradition so in his case he's uh, he uh, at the, especially at the time was writing a lot of sonnets and so he describes you know the his his work as being you know a, a reflection on ideas and emotion uh, and in part of the conversation he talks about like I I, I in light of the fact that I've edited these podcasts, I have to watch them so many fucking times that I end up like committing a lot of it to memory. Mm -hmm. He talks about, you know, um, uh, a lot of chefs play with bitterness, Mm -hmm. but what is, what would a dish look like that is a reflection on remembered bitterness, right? Like your heart was broken 20 years ago and you're remembering that time that you felt bitter, but you no longer do. What does that look like in a plate? Uh, and then he also refers to art, so he, sort of as a distinction of like when you cross the line from craftsmanship to mm-hmm. artistry, right? And then he also refers to um, uh, it being a, a, a conversation with your tradition. So when I'm writing sonnets, I am doing that, but I'm also uh, engaging with the tradition of all of these centuries of people who've written sonnets over the years. I think that in both of your, uh, let's call them crafts, right, mm-hmm. as a sort of baseline, you can, there are moments at the very least where you can sort of cross that line, right? Like whether it's that you're, as an example, like you're doing the thing with plantains and foie gras. And in that moment, like you're having a conversation with the centuries of people who fried a plantain and grilled foie gras or, or seared foie gras and and you're having a conversation. It's like this weird triangular thing. And I imagine that in cocktails, there's a certain amount of that, right? Like whether, sure. whether in the moment you're like thinking of it that way is sort of irrelevant. At some point, if, you know, unless you're making it like, you know, very by the book, old fashioned, at some point you enter into a like thing where you're having a conversation with all of the people who've made old fashioned before you, mm-hmm. you know? 
and and you're also marrying it whether they're yours or not right like some of them are yours and some of them are Ariettes and some of them are mics or whatever but there's all these ideas that come right. into play of that you're so i i think that uh i guess i just wanted to come in before you played off of what mike said and you know i i, I would hate for for it to become a thing where like you're out of a sense of like, oh, we're more craftsmen. Uh, I, I don't think you have to be purely one or the other. I think you can have these moments of like artistry. But I, I also think that... And, and, I'm, sorry, and I, I'm, so, not, I'm sorry, but like in the way that like a painter, like a lot of... Kiki Valdez, who we've had on the podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, Kiki Valdez, before he gets to the point of making his art, has to master these crafts so that he can do his art. I'm not disagreeing with you, right? Like there is a certain level of artistry at the end of the day that like ends up on the plate. Right. What really grinds my gears, right, is how people want to jump that step and they want right. they want to sure. not 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 only like do the process but appreciate the process and like love the process, love the reduction of a sauce. Love the aspect of like butchering a whole animal and understanding what that means. Like, we have jumped from, from point A to point Z very quickly because of the way that the world is. So do I think that there is a certain level of artistry in what we do? Absolutely. But this is why I consider myself a craftsman because I really very much appreciate all of it, right? And then the end result is beautiful. It's this creative collaborative thing that ends up on a plate and the end result hopefully is that people enjoy it but it's it's the craft part that i feel like we are going to continue to lose it's going to continue to etch away right. at the world because all we want is to be like either the guy or liked or the thing all of that right and I think this is this is a perfect kind of this is a perfect culmination of, of what it is that we've been talking about, right? So like the the idea and the concept, or at least the, the the verbiage of mixology, is something that I struggle with, but it's not the most offensive thing that I'll have dealt with today, right? But when we're talking about craftsman craftsmanship, and when we talk about that, you know, that flirtation with artistry, and when we talk about chefs to a certain extent for sure when we talk about people within the beverage world <clears throat> when this craftsmanship is ignored or skipped over right and the idea of like the expression of oneself overrides craftsmanship and right. tradition then for me that's where the issue arises you want to you want to call yourself a mixologist that's fine i'm i'm that's not for me but i'm, I'm also like if that's what you want to do, I'm all about it. But when it when it comes to the point where like something something is physically produced in a liquid format that it that's an expression of oneself, when craftsmanship is ignored, then for me that's where that's where the issue is because then I think we're missing the point. Right. It it, it goes back to like so similar in both regards, beverage and food. There's a lot of like fodder around the mm -hmm. actual thing that's being served right does it actually make sense is it functional does it make the dish better does it make the beverage better like sometimes people pay attention to all the shit that makes it pretty instead right. of 
is the actual thing that you are serving fucking delicious? Right. Nothing else matters. What matters the most is like, forget all the other like smoke and mirrors, all the stuff, all of it. You know, the fucking dry ice, the fucking uh, 17 garnishes on a cocktail, the food thing that it's like all this show going around the food. If it doesn't make the food better, is it better? Right. But people lose themselves in all that. And that's where we lose the craft part. And like the craft part is to me the most important thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, Manny's here. He could probably he'll double down on me. It's like I don't know how many times we've talked to kids that have wanted to work here that could talk to you about a circulator till they're fucking blue in the face, but they don't know how to butcher a chicken. Right. And it's it blows my fucking mind. You know, and it's like how many times have you talked to several mixologists? that in your how big is the rolodex that you have for cocktails it it currently stands at between 350 and 400 400 cocktails right that probably doesn't know three quarters of those right Right. what what percentage of that would you say is like uh, i don't know for lack of a better word classic Mm, cocktails like is this like 400 like beyond a certain no, so just just for the for the record and for the podcast, this is essential. This is a combination of uh, classic drinks that are adapted for balance and that make sense, and also contemporary drinks as well. Okay, so these these range from like the Naked and Famous and Paper Plane to uh, a drink called the War Days, which is like a Applejack gin, Manhattan with sweet vermouth and chartreuse that goes back Apple to like. Uh, like American Applejack, like Laird's Applejack from New Jersey. Man, that sounds good. Apple brandy. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I mean, all of those drinks go back to a, about uh, 15 core drinks, right? Which are in what is currently the area hospitality group bar manual introduction. So there's would, always... Would this be analogous to like a mother sauce? Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Look at you, Nick. I know. I know. I, I, the same I, I, no, I just ab- fucking ab- let's clap absolutely. it up for Fucking a, man. I fucking know. Jesus I'm not Christ, just, that's I'm, incredible. I'm not Fuck. Just new, I'm just not, not just new profile pictures. And, you know. <laughs> that's good. Uh, it's a mixture of contemporary and classic drinks, but also because of because of where it is that I've chosen to work and what it is that I've chosen to take on board, right? I will take a book from the 1970s, for example, and I'll, I haven't done it in a hot minute, but I'll scroll, I'll scroll through the recipes and I will take like a very small, but I think justified amount of um, like liberal interpretation. So if I see if it may have one ingredient missing, I will add an ingredient to that recipe and I'll put it into the category of like, well, this is like an old fashioned or an adaptation of an old fashioned or a Manhattan, that kind of thing. There's a, there's a fucking awesome book called, um, oh man, it's uh, it's by a guy called Stan Jones. It was printed in the 1970s. It's got like maybe thousand plus recipes, probably more than that. Some of them are like garbage, but some of them are diamonds, but some of them need like a tweak. It's like you add a quarter ounce of sugar, right? Or you add like a small amount of bitters and it actually is transformed into 
an old fashioned variation or a sour or a daiquiri. But going back to that Rolodex, the Rolodex is, um, it's a combination of like classic and contemporary. Things that are served in bars or that should be asked for or that we take for granted. So like mimosas and espresso martinis, so like a uniform recipe to slightly more obscure things where it's like, you know, you won't get asked for like a, a godfather or a rusty nail that often, but this is the recipe and the way that we do it that I think makes sense. And even though I wouldn't go around Miami doing a fucking rusty nail tasting competition, if I ever felt in the mood for one, I think this is the best version of that drink that we should put out. And that's how that's how we do it within the company. I just want to know. Sounds like mixology. I just, I just want to know, in case it doesn't feel like we've done this, we're about an hour and a half. Ago. I know, I, I can count. Wow. Actually, we're like, we're, we're like an hour and 50 minutes in, but we lost 22 minutes. I know. We're an, <laughs> we're an oh, hour and 50? Yeah, an hour and 50. It's not too bad. All right. Do you feel like the um, the menus that you have in place have impacted the city or will impact the city moving forward? Um, They will eventually. What does that mean? <clears throat> so if we think about area hospitality group in... Miami or like in the wider in the wider area of Florida, right? From a beverage standpoint, I think you know, <clears throat> I like to think of it as like a, a cruise ship, right? You move in one direction at a fairly steady pace and it's very slow incremental turns that steer people in a specific direction, you know? We aren't in a fucking, well, actually we're in Miami, so this would make sense. We're not in a fucking Ferrari that like drives 100 miles an hour and then just makes a turn and then goes in that direction. Like from a beverage perspective, and I think the best, the best people have done this in their respective cities, right? Whether they're from there or not. I think the biggest impact you've generally seen from individuals within, you know, within the beverage profession it's not something that's happened overnight. And if it has happened overnight, then that's a real big fucking issue. That's a real big problem, right? If you've had a, a venue or an establishment that's opened and like the city's changed or people's drinking culture or like their habits have changed overnight, that's that's a huge topic of conversation. But I think going back to what you were saying, with the menus that we have throughout the company, you know, it's part of a larger picture and that larger picture I don't think can really be seen until you kind of step further back and that stepping further back is a, a metaphor for something that's more long-term right and this kind of this will bring me on to a specific subject how many classic cocktail bars can you name in the city super classic cocktail bars like None. like when when you talk about cocktails that like aren't fucked with classic daiquiri None. right zero did you ever go to the Region Cocktail Club back in the day? I did. What do you think about it? I loved it. Same. Yeah, I loved it. Same. I talking did about it. when Julio ran it. Yeah. So I did it. I did. I did a guest shift there back in 2013, mm -hmm. um, May 2013, and Julio was there. A guy called Nick Nistico, uh, Danny Valdez, George Lemay was working the dive bar, uh, the dive bar downstairs. Josh Wagner was in charge of the food and beverage for that hotel. Wow. It was in 2013. Um, and the Regent Cocktail Club was the closest thing that, and you know, the context is kind of skewed, right? Like this was at a time when it was 2013, 
So I would have been 26. This would have been like right, right at the time where all I wanted to do was learn about classics um, and classic variations because I think it was something that was largely missing in a part of the world where I was from at the time. Um, I think, you know, without realizing what else Miami was doing back in 2013 and what Miami is doing now, I think the Region Cocktail Club was a fucking diamond of a bar and an establishment that was leagues ahead of its time. Mm. Leagues ahead of its time. And you know, like I've... And now it's like washed out the face of the earth. Yeah. yeah. Sad, right? It's really sad. And, you know, and, and I've, I've only been in the city for four years. You know, like I haven't really... I haven't visited the city before I moved here and in between that time before I moved here in that 2013. But I think to not be able to put your finger on like whatever you want to call it, like an old school cocktail bar, a classic cocktail bar, a cocktail bar that just focuses on classics where the glassware is cold, the ice is good, the juices are fresh and the spirits are quality, right? And those are four things that I think are very, very, very simple to do. Not easy to get right, but but simple to do. And a lot of the places in this city, again, for better or for worse, decide to focus on aspects that move away from most of those things i think i think it's sad because miami is a fucking amazing city and i think miami deserves a lot of success and i think it deserves like a lot of financial success and i think it deserves a lot of good people to live here and it deserves a lot of success in the food and beverage scene and i think um i think while i love the city and i will always continue to love the city i think it needs more places where you can grab a drink where the pretension is removed and the focus on something craft oriented but that's also quite simple which is something that i think we do pretty well at the gibson i think miami deserves more of those things mm -hmm. as well as the as well as the things that area and area hospitality group do and you know other restaurants that also deserve or maybe deserve michelin stars in the city also mm -hmm. I mean, the Gibson is my favorite place to have a drink and eat some food. Great. Or other other way around. Or right, have some right. food and have a drink. You know, I think like that, that space, the space, is, the space itself really connotates like what we do there. Mm -hmm. You know, like <clears throat> we talk about like Ariad having a soul. I think the Gibson itself... The bones of that building have a soul in and of itself. I don't think we've really seen what it can be or what right. it's going to develop to be. I mean, we're five months old, really. Not even, but yeah. So I think it, we're going to see it to see it continue to grow. And like, I'm excited to see like what the food and beverage grow to be there. Like, I, I really feel like. People go there now looking for cocktails. People go there mm -hmm. for good food, and now they go for good music. Thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut in here. Uh, I think both as a producer and also as a relayer of uh, listener feedback. Uh, Britty Pie on Instagram would like it like us to spice it up. <laughs> okay, that's good. Clearly, the Gibson is quite quiet tonight, which is why she would like <laughs> us to spice it up. We could check Spice the cameras. Spice it up, people. We could check the cameras and see what Brittany is Also, doing. she'd like us to uh, know that fuck Middleborough. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. <laughs> we have we have an absolute troll on this episode. This is the first time we've ever had a troll a, on an a, episode. A past guest and troll. Yeah. Well, I mean, like let troll. let Brittany troll. Like a sports team sucks. So like well, it is what it is. Okay. This is getting real heavy. Yeah. I, I, that sounds Danny like she wants it spicy. Sent, that sounds two, like Tom spicing peppers. it up. <laughs> two chili peppers on the line. I mean, like, when you're from Philly, what else have you got to live for, you know? Wow. <laughs> wow. It's getting real intense over here. Sounds spicy to me. So, we clearly don't have much time left, so let's keep talking. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> The great thing about this podcast is we have all the time in the world. We okay. have exactly seen, two and a half hours. I have seen I have seen people. Well, this is uh, pre Pancom podcast, but on Tea Time with Mike and Mike, there was a whole like. Um, do you remember you were there for Matt Herget? <laughs> Brit, Brit says Tom's fired. <laughs> <laughs> I got what I wanted. Peace out. Okay. We're going to stop this live feed. <laughs> We're We're out here. <laughs> uh, this is the most followers you've had. We've had to, we have to end it now. Thanks Jeez. to Brittany Rothwell for ending the live stream. Jesus, Peter. We had 226 people looking there. That's, That's great. Right. Yeah. Good for you, Tom. Um, what else What else you want to know? What is it about... I mean, I've I have some I have some questions. Go on. Okay. So, uh, well, I don't know if this is something you can talk about. I love that. I love that the most. You said you said that before I came along, there were issues, and we've kind of touched upon them briefly within like the biggest subject of what it is that I do in my profession. You said that there were issues with regards to individuals uh-huh. beforehand, right? right? Why do you think that is? And let's take the company and the individual away from that. Why do you think that is? And why do you think the... Why it's do an you easy think, answer. Stop, okay. stop asking the question. Right. It's an easy answer. It's like, so you... Before you went and you wanted to make a point, you immersed yourself in the culture of the company. You, immer- you like immersed yourself in like what it meant what this restaurant means, what that restaurant means, what Chugs meant, what the overall vision of the company as a whole meant, you know? It wasn't just about you. It wasn't just about like, like what cocktail does Tom want to make today? And I'm sure like you have those days that you, I wake up and I'm like, I really have this idea and I would love to do this idea. Like the other day, I just wanted to make a fucking sandwich. I made a fucking sandwich. Mm-hmm. It was all these things and it was like back and forth and I couldn't fucking sleep just thinking about it. Right. What is this? Just try it. Okay, just try it. Got it. <laughs> oh, this is the Yuka thing? Fuck me up. Okay. Relax. Fuck me up, relax. <laughs> that was the biggest difference right the biggest difference was there was no ego involved right and listen with tom lasher walker comes a lot of things right (laughs) we've gotten to know each other very well over the last year and a half right you're a lot but what you are is that you're studied you're well thought out you think about 
the space, what the space wants, what it needs, what the kind of clientele has, like what are their wants, what are their needs. That was the biggest difference. Right. And for me, in the search of this like beverage director within Miami's like whatever, whatever it had to offer, I had a hard time because like as a company, and I say it all the time, it's like not about me. Right. It's not about you. It's not about Manny. It's not about Oz. It's not about anybody. It's about the whole thing. What are we trying to do? Really like understand each concept. Take each concept. Like take it as far as you can. And then really share that experience with the guest. Mm -hmm. So that understanding of not making it a personal thing, not making it an ego thing was where I think with mixologists in general, right. I had, I was lost, right? There's very few bars that I can go to now that it's not about like the person behind the bar. You know, like I think the dudes at Jaguar Sun do a great job. Yeah, agreed. They, they understand their space. Mm -hmm. They understand the cocktails that they're doing. They understand the kind of clientele that they have. The service that they're providing, the food that they're doing, like they understand it all and they're doing a very great job at all those things. <clears throat> but that's few and far between. Mm -hmm. You know, like those kind of people you don't find very often. And that's why I think that entire like that journey and that's why like I threw up a white flag and I was like, fuck this. I'm like, we're going to serve fucking old fashions and Negronis and we're just going to call it a day. That's why I was at that point because it it's hard to to take a person and say you're going to do this job that it's like executing cocktails, but you need to remove yourself from it. Right. Make it about the concept. Make it about the space. Make it about the people that are going to dine there. Not about yourself. Right. And, and, and just like to speak further in the fact, in the culture that we live in today as a society, everything is about like, Smoke and mirrors, like how many likes do I get? How many right. people are watching this thing that I'm doing? This new cocktail that there's dry ice and there's a bunch of stuff and I'm going to shake or whatever over it. Same thing with fucking food, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about smoke and mirrors. But is what's on the plate or is what's in the glass? Mm -hmm. Is there meaning behind it? Is there a story behind it? Because right. to me, the story is really, it, it's really what matters. Right. You know, like... People ask me all the time, like, you know, what is Ariette? I'm like, let's just talk about the foie dish. Okay. Let's just talk about that. Where that story came from. Let's talk about, like, the short rib and how I was sitting on a porch with my former sous chef till 6 in the morning talking about this dish that has been our highest selling dish since day one. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. You know, like, there's a story behind it. To me, that is that is the real context and, like... The texture of like what makes it special. It's not the fact that it's wrapped in gold and, and that there's like dry ice around it and all this shit, which is like everything that, that, which is all the bad parts of the city in general. So from the cocktail side, it's so much easier to lose sight of like what, what matters, right? Cause right. you're just getting people banged up. Right. You're getting banged up. They're three drinks in. They're out. They don't even fucking remember, right? Right. Giving them a story and giving them texture behind that and then removing yourself from it to me was the hardest part right which i think is a great summary and it's gonna it's gonna tie into what we're talking about what we talked about previously with 
mixologists and I guess to a certain extent my um, title is a director of beverage right and I think let's see if I regret this in the morning I think when it comes to mixologists or when it comes to mixologists they're in a that are in a position of power mixologists get paid right to do things that they want in a space okay as a director of beverage I don't get paid to do what it is that I want in a space I get paid to do something that I make I, I get paid to do something that I think makes sense in that space right and it's not what I want and let's just clear this up because I have signature drinks right I have drinks that I've worked on for five minutes and drinks that I've worked on for two years that I, I put my name to some of them are out there in the universe, some of them are not, but some of them are things that I carry with me. Um, I have very, very few, if any, very few signature drinks that I've worked on, that I put my name to, that are on lists within the company, okay? And so when you look at drinks at Ariane and the Gibson and Nave and other properties within the company, yes, they are things that I came up with but I'm not going to take credit for them because they are things that have already existed previously or they are things that have ex- existed previously that I put a spin on and adapted for the room and for the environment and for the people in that space. So, you know, yes, the drinks are something that I am responsible for and the spec and the technique, okay? And it's not like I'm ashamed of them because I'm not. it's not like I'm not going to take them out into the world, but... There are things that I've worked on for a very long time and I continue working on. And they, they may not see the light of day in this company for a minute. And I'm more than fine with that because that's not important. What is important is that the beverage that exists within the environment of each individual space in this company and this company as a whole is something that makes sense from a service perspective, an execution perspective, and like goes alongside a culinary perspective as well. Well, That's what matters for me. Execution is key, right? Because there's plenty of dishes that I've thought of exhaustingly, but Mm -hmm. they they have never existed Mm -hmm. because we couldn't execute them consistently every single day. And that's really where the hard part of being in your position is and in my position is, is like being... I mean, I find myself pretty creative. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can't put them actually into practice because you never want to overwhelm your team or you never want to not give the guest a hundred percent. Right. Which like those two things are like the key for me. Don't overwhelm your team because mm-hmm. if they're overwhelmed, they're not going to execute to their 100. And you don't ever want to give the guests something that you don't feel 100% in. Right. And I think those two aspects, like people lose sight of that because they're just like, yeah. fuck it, we're just going to let it ride. Right. Can't just let it ride. It doesn't work that way. You are fortunate that people have walked into your space to spend their money, to spend their time with you. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. It's a massive privilege. It's, a it's hundred, an honor. It's 100% yeah. a privilege. So like, the this was delicious. This is the thing for the next next week? Yeah. I love that. Why are your pants so high? 
your pants so high. <laughs> it's hot. Yeah. Why is there anyone still serving drinks? That's my question. It is yeah. 11.35. Oof, probably not, no. Okay. I mean, I know a guy that can make a drink. Yeah? <laughs> I mean, I just, I just need one of these guys. What is that? It's a scotch on the rocks. Oh, right. It does. Me? No, I'm a rum guy. Yeah, no, I know. Through and through scotch. Um, well. Can I, can I, can I throw a... If we can get Tom another scotch. You let me know whether this should be cut off. I don't know. Sure. It's something I'm personally curious about. Uh, so at some point in the future, mm-hmm. El Vecino will open. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love this. I, I, like I, just, I love the direction. This I is love going. it, man. I love it. I, I love it, man. I, I love, love it. Man, I love it. Man, Tom's been practicing. <laughs> He's hung, he's hung out with me a lot in the last yeah. year and a half. So yeah, I just I, I just wonder what your uh, at least for for the company, it's a it's a new task challenge mm-hmm. uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about like what your approach your is. Your so for right. for context, El Vecino will be opening next door to Laurel. Yeah, uh, area hospitality groups, French brasserie. Mm-hmm. El Vecino will be a cigar bar opening mm-hmm. next door. I only mention that it's next door because maybe that has some influence on how you think about that project. Uh, um, uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. So, so just just talk about um, uh, and Mike for those who are just listening has left. I guess maybe to get a drink or something. <laughs> right, uh, but I, I imagine whatever you're going to say is not something he's never heard. Um, but uh, talk. Walk the person who's listening to this through how you think about this project. How new? I, I don't know whether you've ever dealt with something that's like tobacco adjacent or tobacco involved, um, and how you're thinking about this. Because I, I imagine that at least in the context of the area thing, it's very new. It's very different. You know. So this is this is also my. So there's there's a there's a enormous amount of like kismet about this whole thing, right? Not just El Vecino, but Area Hospitality Group in general, my role, my position, the company. And just for a little bit of context, I'm going to throw back out there. So I live in Coconut Grove, right? So I live I live a three-minute bike ride away from the headquarters and the, the offices, as well as Nave, Taurus, Area, and Chugs. You know, and <clears throat> there is there is this crazy kind of situation where this hospitality restaurant group that was kind of on my doorstep and something that I, you know, so I went to Chugs 1.0 and loved it. You know, when I worked on the beach um, and I had days off living in Coconut Grove, I would just go and get like a cafe con leche and a grilled cheese and just like take it easy and, you know, like in a very like Neanderthal way, I would get out of bed, couldn't really figure the fuck anything out and was like I'll just go and pay someone to feed me coffee and protein kind of and carbs and that was chugs and I and I loved it you know um, I'd been to area a couple of times um, me and my wife um, had been to Nave as well and obviously everyone loves Taurus thanks chef um, 
you know, so like the, the idea that like me working for this company that was on my doorstep and the fact that Area Hospitality Group had the opportunity to get someone like myself into the company that was local was fantastic. And my point being with this is um, for someone who's worked in food and beverage for over 20 years, right? And for someone who's been working in like something beverage orientated and beverage exclusive to a certain extent for about 15 years, there always comes a point, always comes a point in any bartender's life, whether it comes to realization or not, the idea about opening their own space, you know? Um, And I think the one thing that bartenders and mixologists and beverage directors are looking at with regards to a certain extent is like the profit margins that exist within beverage. The startup costs and the reality of the startup costs are very different because of things like liquor licenses and build outs. And it obviously depends on where in the world that you are, whether it's the UK, whether it's the UK, uh, the, the US or, you know, wherever else, there's always like a large upfront uh, expenditure, but then the the profit that exists within booze that we've talked about, mm-hmm. Chef Mike, it's it's you know it's evident, and so to tie it back in with what it is that you're, are you all right? You wanna? No, okay. <laughs> you waiting for me? Oh, it's locked. Yeah. Oh, motherfucker. <clears throat> hey. The Ariad Hospitality Group has begun to lock that door because uh, the staff are very right. sloppy. The are in there using the right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And so to to answer your question, like my my dream one day would have been or may continue to be, not a sound crypto, is to open a space, you know, that has like a very low, kind of small low capacity, right? That we can put out quality beverage drinks. And it's it's not something that's ever gonna get me rich. But because that financial ceiling is small, it's easier to hit from a cons- uh, from a consistency standpoint, and it's something that I'd be very, very proud and happy to put my name to. And if that comes to fruition, that's great. And if it doesn't, that's also fine because tying it in with Area Hospitality Group and my position, you know, um, there's a few ideas that I've always kind of like stood up, stood upon, and, and formulated and thought about over the last couple of years. Okay. And outside of like a small craft cocktail bar that houses a small amount of people, the other two concepts that I've always flirted with and always wanted to do, one of them was a slightly higher volume kind of craft cocktail bar, right? Which is essentially what the Gibson has become. So one of my my main ambitions within life is something that I've already fulfilled in a way that I never thought that it would kind of come to fruition but that's that's the reality yeah. and, and that even when the Gibson was coming together maybe you didn't imagine what it would become no I mean like I, I'll be brutally honest like I was kind of I was just kind of like feeling it as I went along yeah. and because because of the management and, and the quality of this company that allowed me to kind of explore the space you know like in, in every in every different facet it has become you know, for the first four months, something that I've always wanted to do. And I hope it still it still continues to be that way. And so when, you know, talking about El Vecino, I'm a Scotch guy. Um, one of the reasons why I moved to Scotland to work at Bramble and one of the reasons why I wanted to be in Scotland in Edinburgh was because Scotch was always something that I wanted to learn more about because 
I think it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful category. I think it's a little bit misunderstood and I think it's, um, I think it's misunderstood and I think it's overthought, you know, when it comes to cocktails, there's this extremely weird paradigm where, you know, Scotch cocktails are not very sexy. There's still like this old white men mentality that overrules how scotch should be viewed and how it should be consumed and that's changing a little bit okay but it's not changing as as quickly as i think it should and yeah ironically enough i think the greatest cocktail that's that's come to fruition in the last 20 or 30 years is is the penicillin and i think like what the penicillin uh i think what the penicillin should have done not that i think it's a bad drink i actually think it's an excellent drink i think the penicillin should have given bartenders and people in my profession the confidence to look at that category and do things that hasn't been done before. But I think what's happened is that people have just focused on that on that drink specifically and they've decided to do things creatively that have evolved and revolved around that specific drink as opposed to explore scotch as a category. And so I think when it comes to Elvisino, what I would like to come to fruition and what I would like to see happen is that we have um, a back bar that's almost exclusively brown, right? That's grain orientated with regards to American, a little bit of Irish, definitely American, uh, sorry, Scottish American, a little bit of Irish and Japanese uh, influenced from like a, you know, from a spirit perspective. Um, You know, it's always going to make sense to have a couple of vodkas in there, tequilas, rums for sure. But I want people to come into that space because they want to smoke a cigar and drink a a Tito's and soda or something expensive. And I want people to go into that space to drink a fucking super quality Scotch-orientated cocktail and they stumble across the ability to also smoke a cigar. You know, I think the idea of like having a back bar or a venue that's scotch focused or like whiskey focused where people can do something ad hoc or like, you know, off the cuff from like a mixed drink perspective without breaking a sweat and without thinking about it, especially in somewhere Miami, which is not somewhere that you would really think about, let's say, just scotch mixology or scotch oriented cocktails. That's what I would love to see happen from El Vecino. Because I think it can do it, and I think we can do it too. Yeah, I th- I think um, you know I, uh, I don't I don't know how much of this has come up in conversation, you know, when I'm not around uh, about in the context of El Vecino. Um, but you know, be- before I made the uh, financially very unwise decision to give as much time as I did to right. leave my job and. Uh, I, I was an editor at Cigar Magazine for uh, for seven years. Wow. Um, and I think that not just Miami, but from my perspective, even this company like underestimates how unique this situation is in in the country, but especially in Miami, um, in the sense that. The, the cigar world is just so small, mm-hmm. right? Like, it gives the impression with all of the the gold embossed bands and mm-hmm. the fancy boxes and shit that it's very big. But there there are... I, I can't... Like I said, I, I spent seven years 
as the at the as the senior editor of a, a magazine with the tongue in cheek name Cigar Snob, okay. uh, writing travel content among many other things, and I don't think that I ever, at, and at least every other month, I was traveling to some different U.S. market, and basically I was a professional cigar tourist. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that I ever encountered a cigar bar run by a hospitality company of this caliber. Right. Right. It just does not exist. Right. Right. Like the gold standard is things like the Grand Havana Room that has a location in L.A. and New York and uh, Club Macanudo in New York. And those places, I, I, I really do think that like if either of the two of you went there, you would think like, oh, we'd blow this shit out of the water. Right. Like, right. There, there would be, I think, a certain degree of naivete there, right? Because there's a, 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 a cigar knowledge gap, mm-hmm. right? That, but when you think of like what Michelin-starred companies, right, are involved in that space, I, I don't know that there's any one. There are some chefs who are tied to those companies, like for example, like Davidoff has a project that they did. They, they involve people like Thomas Keller, mm-hmm. but Thomas Keller doesn't have a scarf. Right. Right. There are parts of the French Laundry that I think you can smoke in. Mm-hmm. But that's very different from him right. curating a cigar selection and a cocktail bar that has that in mind and all that. So uh, to, to me, the project is like very exciting because it's so yeah, – it it's like – I don't even know if Borderline is – it might actually be unprecedented in the U.S. Uh, yeah. I mean, Jeff, you remember the conversation that we had on Saturday, right? When uh, – and this is this is something that it it took me by surprise for a minute when you said we were we were in El Vecino. I'm sorry. Can, can I interrupt to ask where the uh, is there a bathroom that you just went to that I, should I yeah, not use? The employer went in there. Right into there. Yeah, you're also going to walk into like a tasting of food. That's why I took that. Right. You know, you remember the conversation where we we were talking about bars, cigars, yeah. beverage, restaurants, right? And you were like. And this is this is something that kind of kind of caught me off guard. And you were talking about how you were talking to people, and you were like, you know, when we're talking about El Vecino, we're not talking about like I'm not in the cigar business. I'm in the booze business. And I was like, okay, well, El Vecino is cigar bar, but it is. What does it say? What does it say on the it says cigars and cocktails, mm-hmm. right? And I think what Nick what Nick was alluding to and what he was talking about is, you know, we've we've spoke about this in length, right? The 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 back bar that we're going to have there is going to be you two, you two, Drew. Thank you. You know, like the the back bar there needs to be fairly brown. There's going to be a good chance that like a lot of that brown stuff might sit there for a minute and then some of that brown stuff is is really going to move and we know about the brands and and what that's going to look like and we also know like the things that pay the bills right and the and the the reality of of that existence but the idea of the idea of people being able to go into that space right and being able to order a mixed drink and then get a cigar and the flip side of that of people being like oh I know a cigar bar, but boy, do they have a drink program there. And do they have a back bar? And also they have snacks. 
Right. Which doesn't exist. Right. At all. Right. Zero. So I mean, the, the fact that we're we can op, we can operate within all three of those dynamics, which is like really good booze and cocktails, a really solid cigar program, and you know have a couple snacks too. Is like mm-hmm. it's just it's not something that exists. Right. And all of our snacks will be from next door. Um. But it's it's um. I think as a concept, it's something I'm incredibly excited about because me as a cocktail drinker, Mm -hmm. you know, like I I told you the other day when we talked on Saturday, I was like, man, you know, like I really love the idea of a carajillo in this space. Sure. Which makes a lot of sense. Hadn't thought about it, but now you brought it to my attention. Sure. Totally executable and makes sense. I mean, it it completely makes sense. I I don't drink carajillos all the time. But if I did, um, I probably would drink it there. Mm-hmm. Like I probably wouldn't drink it at the Gibson. I probably wouldn't drink it at Chugs. But I would probably definitely drink it there. Right. But that's just me. I don't know if other people are going to feel the same. But you know, I think what we can do with that space is really execute a bar that you know Miami doesn't currently have. I agree. You know, like. Uh, with someone like yourself behind the bar program. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's plenty of solid bars with cigars and I think they do really solid work, but I think what we are capable of doing and executing is, is something that they, they, they don't do. Right. You know, um, and that's not to down them. I just think it's just what we specialize in, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, Nick is giving me the circle. What does the circle mean? The, the circle means that two of our three cameras have about 35 minutes left of record time, and we might need that for the lightning round and the wrap-up. Well, I actually... This is a Pancom podcast first. All right. Okay. I, are you ready? I'm, I'm ready. I actually... I brought Tom a gift. Wow. I brought you a gift. You other, did? Other, yeah. Other guests are about to get very jealous. Whatever. They're fine. Um, I spent the last two days thrifting super hard. Right, I, a, I know about this. I'm a yeah. big thrifter. I like thrifting, and I found a bunch of plates for the Gibson and for Chugs in this one place that it was like heaven for me. It was incredible. Where like was I, it? It was in uh, Crystal River, Florida. Crystal River, and it was like this just. Wasn't Jason Volley's there once upon a time? Yeah. It sounds like all the bikers were old and there wasn't one bottle of Campari in the entire county. (laughs) But uh, that's how we measure the culture of a place is how many bottles of Campari there are. It's my, you know, I've learned actually in, um, as I've just become an avid Negroni drinker and that's like all I drink, instead of asking them like, hey, do you know how to make a Negroni? I just walk up to a bar and say, hey, do you guys have Campari? And when they look at me confused, I'm just like, forget it. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we're just going to skirt away from it. Let sure. me just get a gin and tonic, please. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was thrifting super hard. And whenever I thrift, I always go to the book section to see if there's anything interesting in the, uh, in the food section. So I found... Uh, it's not really a, a cocktail book, but it's a cartoon book called Olive or Twist. Uh, 
And um, I actually very much, I'm ne- I never like to talk about what I write in books, but the note that I left you in there is great. Just open it the first one. Okay. <laughs> Wait, read the bottom, read the bottom. Go to the last page. <laughs> See the last page. <laughs> Just for the, you want to, you want to give, con- I'll read, I'll read it out, but you want to give context about where this You give from. context and you read it out. All right, Tom. Good chat. <laughs> Chef Mike. See your last page. <clears throat> but was it really? <laughs> so, what? Chugs, uh, Chugs is open by this point. I'm pretty yeah. Chugs yeah, is yeah. open. Yeah. Chugs is open. And um, we're sitting having a beer, watching which football match? Which American football match? Uh, Outside Barracuda. Oh, fuck. Uh, Probably the Dolphins. No, they didn't play at primetime at any time. It was just like football. Okay. I can watch any football. So American football. American football. So I'm sat next to Chef Mike, and Chef Mike is like, all right, so we need a... You need to get on. You need to go on top of the area bar plan remodel start. And I was like, okay, crazy. So I'm looking at it. I bring out like a digital notebook and I'm like making sketches. And then I just randomly look up and there's a bunch of a bunch of dudes stood in front of the TV and Chef Mike is going wild, just like cursing. And I'm like, shocker. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I can't even remember what it was that like happened. I was like. <clears throat> guys can you guys can you get the fuck yo guys can you get the fuck out of the way and they kind of turn around and then they look at me and I'm like yeah fucking good chat guys well done congratulations <laughs> exceptional chef Mike breaks down like en- ends ends himself the students finally move away and that is that is the origin story of 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 good chat chat. because the the irony was is that there was nothing good about it uh should we should i think we should move on to the the wind down and let's address the other elephant in the room all right okay i love this the other elephant in the room is that some gentleman somewhere in america Mm -hmm. looked at one of our youtube videos yeah okay and nick decided to repost his comments about this video that we did over a year ago. He makes valid points. He does make valid points. But also, you can also understand that he does not listen or watch this podcast at all whatsoever. Okay. And everything is like very, you know, laissez-faire, whatever. Let's break it down to the points. Okay. This gentleman wanted to try the fact of why I say Hupinha is the best soda of all time. This is the main reason Michael Beltran has a laptop on the podcast today. I mean, it's not, it is not the main point, but it is one of the points. So okay. we're going to wind down and talk about fucking hoopy. So Listen, so, you uh, need to fucking relax. We're not fucking than, winding more, down. More than a year ago, for context, more than a year ago, we recorded an Ask Mike Anything episode. Mm-hmm. Listeners submitted questions via Instagram. Mm-hmm. And then we did a whole podcast that was me reading the questions and Mike answering them. And one of uh-huh. them was, why is Hupinha the best soda ever made or something? It's fucking great, eh? And then very recently, like in the last couple of days, we got a very long comment on the YouTube video of this one segment. So we had isolated this question. We posted it as its own video. 
and Mike has strong feelings about this commenter's comment All right. about this. Listen, he's and his comments aren't baseless, but at the same time, take a fucking break, man. Like, just fucking take it easy, guy. You know, like, I'm not a historian on fucking soda. I just really fucking like it. Why is it the best soda of all time? Because I really fucking like it. So let's get down to it. What's the, what's Wait, the beat? How about, how about this? How about if I read the comment? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're gonna read the whole fucking thing. I read the whole thing in the car today, and it was fucking wild. Yeah, it's it's. There's a lot happening here, so um, I will I will read. So from from the comment, you can surmise what Mike's uh, what Mike's commentary was. Uh, his answer, first statement: Hupinga is the best soda of all time. This is a grand and overreaching generality deserving context and argument. Interesting premise. I am hooked at how this has overthrown the beverage industry. Next statement. Quote, for me, I don't drink soda ever. The commenter puts in parentheses. Mm. This discredits his own authoritative opinion immediately. Fuck me. Following statement is, quote, the soda I drank my entire life. This is another immediate contradiction, and I no longer want uh, to believe anything you say. Reasoning as to why Hupinha is the best soda of all time, quote, has as much sugar, sugar as any other soda, so nothing setting it apart, doesn't taste how it's advertised, doesn't actually taste like pineapple. It's so delicious. I literally have no argument as to why I should believe you. Seems less carbonated, doesn't hurt my stomach personally. And then in parentheses, this is actually the only point argued about the exaggerated claim, despite it being situational and baseless. Both hosts follow this by admitting to not liking soda or carbonation, and also avoid any soda due to personal reservations. Fail to give any historical, rational, or distinct reason to verify or discredit the statement of the entire video. I can only draw the conclusion that Hupinha, despite it actually being a delicious beverage, is only your favorite because you both are familiar with it, Uh have sentimental value to you, or because you like Miami, and that you both have no valuable opinion on what is being discussed, but want to seem objective anyway. Normally, I wouldn't take this long, more time than the actual video itself, to go to this depth and breaking this down, but something about this wild claim and my desire for real historical insight just feels absolutely betrayed in watching this. I feel worse than disappointed. I feel mentally violated at the actual lack of substance of this video. Mm, If you're going to make a whole ass video about the soda and its legacy, maybe include any argument at all. But as far as I can tell, it just seems like this video was posted for the virtue of having a video because words happened somewhere. Too long did not read. I have gotten more out of Walmart reviews for milk than this video. Now, I would like to address this before you do. Number one, yes, 
this video was posted for the virtue of having a video because things were said because I have very limited resources and I need to post things to YouTube. Number two, I never said that I like soda. I dislike all soda. I don't like any carbonation. I once threw up because somebody swapped my water for Sprite. Uh, it was gross. I threw up all over the place. I have never had hoopinha. I can't vouch for its tastiness or not. Uh, it's not my thing. The rest is for Mike to answer for. So Hubinho was created in 1905. <laughs> let's let's get it. Hubinho was created in 1905. Mm -hmm. And where was it created? It was created in Pinar del Rio, which is my hometown, which is where my family is from. Wow. Okay. Which is the true reason why I always say it is my favorite soda of all time. When, when did you learn that it was made in Pinar del Rio? A few years ago. Okay. But I'm not like, you know, when we're doing this video because of like what we do, I'm not like really trying to give like factual information because I don't really give a fuck that I, much. I will say that when I, when I post, the, the, I, part of this is my fault because I posted this video and I maybe didn't make it clear enough. That this was a listener question that you had not heard until the moment before I asked it. Regardless of the fact, Jupinho was created because they added carbonation to pineapple juice. Really, in 1905. It continued as being a thing till 1940 when Cowie decided to make it a soda. When Cowie made it a soda, <laughs> I love this. This is the best. Thanks, babe. Yeah, I know. We got 20 minutes. All right, got it. Sure. Right, okay. So then in 1940, Cowie, which is a Cuban originated soda manufacturer, mm -hmm. right? took on Jupinha and they started producing Jupinha as like a soda, right? Cowie at the time, in their first like 30 years of existence, was one of the juggernauts of the soda industry, right? 1959, communism comes, it stops all of production of soda. So Cowie gets two of their executives at that point, leave the country, they flee the country to try to continue their dreams of making the best soda in the fucking world. <laughs> Because in 1959, they actually had the biggest lemon-lime soda selling in the world, which was more than Coke at that time. And then they went to the United States of America, where they picked it up three years later in 1962, which is my favorite Cadillac of all time. Second favorite. It's 1962 Cadillac. By 1965, they had already, they had hit their fucking stride, and they were one of the best soda manufacturers in the world again. So why is Jupinho one of my favorite sodas of all time? One, it's originated in my city. It tastes fucking good, and it's not that carbonated because it's more like cream fucking soda than it is just like soda pop. So if you want to second guess me again, Gomer Pyle, wherever the fuck you're at, understand that I know why I like things, but I don't exactly want to answer questions all the time. Like I'm actually like... You know, give you all the factual information. Like, if you're going, like if you're coming a, to like Panko podcast, podcast, if you're coming, fuck off. If you're coming to Panko podcast for factual information, this is the wrong place. Right, but also Nick, I would like to invoice that specific individual for my time that I have now just lost for both those comments and Chef Mike's comments. Okay, <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. Um, all right, let's. Uh, I'm gonna exercise some producer privilege here. Okay, great. I'm going to end the regular episode right now. Okay. This episode is over. Right. And I had parting recommendations lined up. Hold on. 
part of this it being over. Get real part of it being over means parting recommendations. We're going to make them quick. Michael Beltran, parting recommendations. This is, and by the way, you can think about this while we go. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're a regular listener of this thing that we do. You recommend literally anything as long as it's not your own. So something that you think people should read, watch, do, see. Could be oh, a TV man. show, could be a book, could be okay. a cocktail, meal, anything at all. Okay. Whatever. Mike, what do you got? Oh, me first. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my parting recommendations are three things. <clears throat> One, first and foremost, gas station coffee is delicious. Gas station coffee, to me, still is one of the most beautiful things in America. Is this gas station Cuban coffee or No, no, just no. American coffee, put whatever creamer you want in it, whatever shitty sugar they got there, just put it in there. Delicious. Secondly, Sunday service choir. You guys ever heard this? I, thanks to your Instagram stories, yes. Very good. Really entertaining. I'm a huge fan. You don't like them? Yeah, yeah, wait, no, wait, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Sun, Sunday service choir. Sunday service choir. This is the choir. name of the group. Yeah, it's it's a group. They're actually like Kanye's gospel group. Like I'm not okay. co-signing Kanye at all because I'm not a huge fan. You're not going Deathcon Three on the Jews. I'm not. I'm not. I I didn't even know that they were, and they just came across like my Discover Weekly, and then I listened yeah. to their albums, and they're okay. fucking amazing. They like you know remake like classic R and B songs into like gospel songs, mm-hmm. and they're fucking really good. And my last parting recommendation, two-parter. One, I finally went to Pueblito Viejo, and it was amazing. And we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it more. I have a video in my. Um... Have you been? No, he's never been. I have another, another, another part here. Um, Nick is gonna add two videos to our Instagram. He hasn't co-signed this, but. Uh, I will use my executive privilege to make sure that it happens. One is the Gummy Bear Gang video, which is a roller coaster of a 90 seconds, I think. Is it 90 seconds, Nick? The Gummy Bear Gang video. Remember the one that I sent you on Twitter? Oh, that's good. Yeah, I know. It's really good. It's a roller coaster of a, of a thing. It feels very like Romeo and Juliet, maybe West Side Story, oh, yeah. but with gummy bears. And lots man. Of Fucking amazing. Secondly, is the video of my good friend Tom Lasher Walker explaining why he looks like Doctor Who. <laughs> and why oh, yeah. so many people this, mistook this, him. This will be wow. cut in right now. This right. If you're watching, the if you're watching it, just watch this video. Tom yeah. really does look like Doctor Who. And the last statement I have for parting recommendations, the new season of Yellowstone. Yellowstone? Yeah. Fuck super hard. I'm Fuck super hard. Super bad. Tom Lasher Walker, do you have party recommendations oh, for the people? Fuck, it could be literally anything at all. Put me on the spot. Yeah, okay. So I'm just going to pull from recent experiences over the last Perfect. couple of weeks, all right? Coffee and croquettas at my favorite place outside of Chugs in Coconut Grove and Versailles, which is an institution. Um, El Carajo. Oh man, the best! Right, Love that place. El Carajo was one of the first experiences I had of food and coffee in Miami when I first started coming down here, like once or twice a year, with my wife to see her family. 
and it's something that still stays with me. And on the rare occasion that I, you know, ride over to the Gibson, I have to go slightly out my way. But coffee and anything food oriented at El Carajo, not only is it great, but it's also like a throwback to when I first started coming down to Miami, which really, really started kind of. Uh, it instilled it instilled the dream and the reality of what the city is and what it's become for me and for me and our family. All right, what y'all think? I I also think is great because it's in Coconut Grove, yeah. in a Tiger Tail. Yeah, um, <clears throat> this is going to be a, a little bit of a curveball. Um, Drink Masters on Netflix. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I'll I'll tell you why because. <clears throat> The majority of the drinks and the people on uh, drink masters that go out there and execute that thing that they do from a beverage perspective, uh, creative aspect, artistic, whatever it is that you you want to say, for better or for worse, whether you like it or not, I think it's something that the beverage profession has needed for a long time. I think it's needed it for a very long time, right? And I think that you know while we've talked about food and beverage on this podcast, and while we have very similar and also like differentiating views about what food and beverage is in a restaurant and hospitality environment and with the guys that like this this country um in the usa and also the uk and other other parts of the world i think that one of the reasons why um restaurants have become so important in people's lives right from a culinary and from a experiential aspect Okay, it's because of what people have done in those spaces, but I think we have to we have to respect and pay homage to what it is that's happened in mainstream media, even if we don't like it and even if we don't agree with it. Right? I think it's something that like we have to acknowledge and we have to take uh, into our own to make it make sense for us on a day to day basis, whether it be like from a business aspect or whether it be from like. An executional and a service aspect. So I think like Drink Masters on Netflix is something that is extremely important for people to see because I think it's the beginning of something beverage oriented from a mainstream perspective. Man, and my third thing. Ah, oh, man. You have as many things as you want. You just got a free rule. Up to you. I'm going to say something super controversial. Ooh, super I like, controversial. I like, I like controversial. The World Cup. You're recommending it. The people watch it. Is that is that that controversial? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. it is. It is. It is. Yeah. And I'll, like, there's a there's a couple of reasons I'll put out into the into the world why, okay. right? Sure. I've been a football soccer fan for the entirety of my been entirety of my life, right? It's it's more than a culture. It's more than a religion. It's it's more than a lifestyle it's something that's just like it's part of my dna okay i remember spending a small amount of a small amount of time in my 20s right during the premier league era when uh, there was a lot of football and soccer stars getting paid a lot of money and there were all there was also a lot of smuddiness um within that era and when i talk about smuddiness i'm talking about like media coverage i'm talking about individuals that were doing things that they were not supposed to be doing right whether it's uh from a, a perceptional aspect or whether it's like from a power financial kind of uh you know position 
I think there are there are many many uh, ugly parts of football that don't get talked about as much as they should be. Um, but I think like like a lot of Americans, right? Like basketball, American football, baseball, football just has this incredible fucking romanticism about it, and it's a global sport, and it's something that like from like a, a male sports perspective if this is something that like i'm addicted to i'm completely fine with that but the world cup in uh, qatar right now is a very controversial situation um and i think that football has the power to do some really really fucking good things but only if this follow through only if this follow through and i think something like and again this is man this is a huge subject something like fifa which is a massively corrupt organization and i understand the reality of football in general being a fairly corrupt uh situation from a sports perspective especially when you're talking about like sports washing right with regards to like middle eastern and to a certain extent like american companies and conglomerates coming into european italian not so much dutch uh but especially like english british uh soccer clubs I think that Qatar as ugly as it is from like a corruption aspect from a financial aspect from like a lack of human rights aspect this is an opportunity for football to finally do something good that doesn't fucking benefit itself okay because there's over a billion people throughout the world that watch this sport and rightfully so but now maybe is the time to fucking talk about like how good it is and how good it can be and the fucking quality that it can give to people outside of the people that are affiliated with that sport in countries that do and do not get access to that as a sport. That's good. I, that's a super solid parting recommendation right there. I mean, fuck. That I'm I'm super into that. Uh, Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This was all very good. And if you paid a dollar, you're gonna hear the uh, three. I got a record back. Stuff. Oh man, Nick is drank. (laughs) Nick has had some some cheap brown stuff tonight. Go on, Nick. Go ahead. I got stuff. I got stuff. No, I'm just gonna very quickly. I'm gonna recommend um, some other podcasts that do not belong to us that I have listened to recently. One of them is the Wet Palette. Oh, she's uh, great. Brenda mm-hmm. is great. She was a guest at our most recent live podcast. Uh, and she had you on as a guest. Yeah. She's had a bunch of people on as a guest. In uh, this I, room. In I this thir- very room. I thoroughly enjoyed her interview with Timon Malou. Oh, good. That was good. It was good stuff. Um, so go check that out. Also check out... Uh, conversations with Coleman, hosted by Coleman Hughes. Uh, the, he's a, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. His most recent episode, at least at the time that we're recording this, was about uh, plea deals and confidential informants. So if you're into the topic of uh, the justice system and all that shit, there's that. Um, and also, I'm going to transition us into shameless plugs. Uh, listen to what at the time of this recording is our most recent release the live 
podcast with Jorge Mas, Amazing. who is soccer tie-in, Love that. Uh, a, the managing owner of Inter Miami CF, which, fun fact, is CF and not FC because it is Spanish for Club de Fútbol. Um, Oh. Because it's the uh, you know international Miami Club de Football. Got it. Um, and we had a, a, a wide ranging conversation. Mike had a wide ranging conversation into which I interjected in the last ten minutes or so, much as I am doing now, uh, about Cuba and shit. But we also talk about his leading a Fortune 500 company and going public and seeing their stock tank, stock price tank, and all manner of other things. Um, those are my parting recommendations and my shameless plugs. I think that the two of you can share shameless plugs. All the things. All the things. And also One Minute Mixology is your shameless plug. It is. It just Do you have any other shameless plugs? No, it just needs to be kept on top of them all. But well, well, just very quickly, mm-hmm. as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. what was the original thinking behind? Because obviously at this point, I, I, I get the sense from the name. Mm-hmm. That you chose the handle with a different concept in mind. You're you were probably in a different place. And uh, what was the what were you doing at the time that you were thinking one minute mixology? So I mean, I was bartending at the time. Yeah. Um, the idea was to create. So Instagram had like this algorithm at the time, or at least like the setup where um, you could post videos that were. 60 seconds or less and they wouldn't skip to like another part of the algorithm or another part of the setup or another you know slide whatever so the idea was to condense a classic cocktail into less than 60 seconds um and that's and that's what it was and the only reason why it was something that i struggled to keep on top of is that like from an editing perspective there was about five to seven about five to seven different aspects that needed uh, attention and it was like an intro it was the top down view that needed to be sped up then it was the editing aspect which I used iMovie for um, there was the voiceover there was the outro um, and then there was the whole thing putting it together so from my perspective I think something like one minute mixology at the time on Instagram and clearly TikTok has overtaken that which is also fine the idea being is that you know, I'm okay with people's attention span becoming shorter over time because that's just the reality, the reality that we live in with regards to technology, social media, like we can fight and gripe about it, but that's just how it works. I also work in that way for better or for worse and people in general. But the idea with one minute mixology is that you get the ability to look at classic cocktail, um, of ingredients that are included in that drink that you can buy from a local liquor store that you can make at home. And that's it. And that's it. And the thing is, is that with One Minute Mixology is that like you're a bartender at home that likes making drinks, you can make the drink. But also like you're a bar fly that goes into other places, like you're a rum Negroni guy or like you're a Godfather guy or you're an old fashioned guy. You can also be like, hey, listen, I just, so I just saw this online. Can you make it this way? And someone looks at it for 60 seconds or less and they can make it that way because it's easy to follow. Before we move on to the lightning round, I want to just offer a shout out 
to a company and an event that we unfortunately had to miss tonight. Uh, we started, it is now past midnight, it is 12.30 a.m., but we started recording this podcast on the anniversary of Fidel Castro's death, and Great. Cush, Hospitality was, wow. Cush Hospitality was hosting Fuck Fidel Day uh, at, Shout out Cush, to you, Cush. at Cush Hialeah. What that? Uh, past guest, Vicky Collado, I believe, I could be wrong, so excuse me if I'm wrong. I believe lost had to cede her title as the winner of the Fidel Pinata competition. Uh, last year she won. She cut his head off in a very like, you know, Luke Skywalker lightsaber sort of fashion. Love that. Uh, I think from what I'm seeing on Instagram right now in real time, maybe there's a new winner. I don't know. Uh, but you know, shout out to Kush Hospitality. Kush, who, uh, to the best of my knowledge, is not Cuban, but who employs some Cuban. <laughs> He's definitely not Cuban. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, participating, as we said in the whole, yeah. as, as I said in the whole, you know, participate. Find a way to participate. Kush has been, uh, you know, Kush is, uh, is a person who's down with the cause here. Uh, they were raising money for Cuba de Cide, among many other things. Cool. So there's all of that. And now... Ladies and gentlemen, if you you will hear beyond this point if you are paying on Patreon. But before we part ways, enjoy that dollar. Thank New you, Year's Tom. Be Ten bucks. Thank you, Tom, for joining us for this. Thank you for me. Yeah. And now for the lightning round. Oh, Amen.